The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch the left field deep. Bam going back. Looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back. It's one out. Pete he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. This is what shocks me about the World Series. And I don't know why. But... The Astros are minus 235. They're one of the largest favorites entering a World Series all time. The Red Sox in 07 were minus 240 to beat the Colorado Rockies. Minus 235 against the Nats. Are you kidding me? Like... Does no one understand how good the pitching staff is for the Nats? The Nats have four pitchers. The Astros have three. So, I I, I don't get it. I, I know, trust me, I know how good the Astros are. Right? We do know. They're no joke. But neither are the Nats. The Nats got power. The Nats have the ability to play small ball. Are, are you going to tell me that Scherzer, and you're going to tell me that Strasburg can't match up with Cole and Verlander? Are you kidding me? Yeah, they can. We might we might need to look into this, because I, 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 I'm having a hard time believing that everybody thinks the Nats don't have a chance. The Nats were second in starters ERA while the Astros were third. This will be the first time since 1981 that the top three teams in starter ERA were in the World Series. Dodgers second and the Yankees were third back in 1981. Starters are back in vogue, Commander Cody, whether you like it or not. This isn't about bullpens. This World Series is about starters. And Grinky or Corbin, who's pitched better in the postseason? I'm going Corbin. You're telling me Strasburg can't match up with Verlander? Scherzer can't match up with Cole? I think it's crazy. I mean, I know. I mean, the, the Yankees don't have any starting pitching. I didn't give the Yankees a, a shot at all. The Yankees were going to have to, it was going to have to be bombs away. It was going to have to be bombs away for the Yankees were going to have to blow out the Astros, which was not going to happen. By the way, the Astros are now 89-2 and when leading by three or more runs, including the playoffs, and they're 51-0 and at home during that time. Altuve is the second player 
against the Yankees to hit a walk-off home run, say bye-bye. Bill Mazeroski did it back in the day. Cody, you're not going to put the year? Well, everyone, 1960, everyone knows when that I was. I don't know, 1960 against the Yankees. By the way, what was... 59 years ago. Which was fascinating about that World Series is that the Yankees actually outscored the Pirates in the World Series. They did. and they took By the, a lot. And they took the lead in the ninth inning. The, the Pirates were trolling going to the ninth. The, the Pirates blew it in the ninth, and then Mass hits the walk-off home run in the ninth. 1960, Bill Mazeroski, Game 7. And when he hits, he's, he's like, he's got his hat on, and he takes his hat off, and he's doing the windmill with the hat as he's running around the bases. Jose Altuve. I've given him all the credit in the world whenever the A's have played the Astros. I've said this, and I'll continue to say it. He is going to be in the Hall of Fame. Jose Altuve is right now the only guy we have ever seen to be matching the great Pete Rose in hits. 4,256. Sorry, Ichiro, Japanese baseball doesn't count. It's not the big leagues. I have a lot of respect for Japanese baseball, but I can tell you, Japanese baseball, having watched it now multiple times, it's a high level of baseball, but you're you're not playing against the big leagues. You got a lot of small guys who are slapping the ball around the ballpark. It's not big league baseball. But Jose Altuve, you look at his hits. He went for 225 in 2014, 200 in 2015, 2016 in 2016, and 2004 in 2017. Now, the last couple of years have been banged up a little bit. But right now in nine years, Jose Altuve has 1,568 base hits. A lifetime 315 batting average. For a second baseman, a lifetime 827 OPS. That is Hall of Fame numbers. I pulled up Pete Rose up through his age 29 season, the same age as Altuve. Pete Rose had 1,532 hits, and he had an OPS of 811. So, Altuve's better. Altuve's got a better OPS. Altuve's got more hits. Altuve's a far better athlete. He's got more home runs. He's got more power. He's got to have more RBIs. Uh, Yeah, Pete Rose had 485. Now, Pete was a leadoff hitter, though. I'll take nothing away from the hit king. I mean, Pete Rose, the the one thing Pete Rose was, he's not the nicest guy in the world. He's not the classiest guy in the world. Pete was a winner. And And the thing with him, too, is he played more games than Altuve. Altuve only played 57 games his first year. Pete Rose played 157. There's about a hundred game difference there. I will take nothing away from Pete Rose. He was a pretty good. He was a really good hitter. Pete but, Rose was a. Pete Rose is a is a winner. Pete Rose showed up to Philadelphia, and that team didn't have the backbone until Pete got there, and Pete led them to the World Series. And you can ask Mike Schmidt. You can ask Larry Boa. They all said, "What was the difference?" It was Pete Rose. They each have won an MVP award. And how old, how old was Pete when he got to Philly? Uh, Pete would have been 38. 38. A guy, a 38-year-old showed up, and what did he hit? What did he hit for him? Uh, his first year in Philly, he hit 331. 
at 38 years old. Yeah, it's pretty good. And 100, and he played in 160, somehow he played in 163 games. So I ain't taking anything away from Pete Rose. Pete Rose is one of the greatest players of all time. Guy was a winner and a great lead. You know, he was a great leadoff hitter. As much as everybody goes, ah, Ricky's the best of all time. Yes, but but right behind him is a guy by the name of Pete Rose. Pete's a winner, and so is Jose Altuve. I always like telling the story. So the steps at the Coliseum visiting clubhouse. I'm I, I, so you make a left and you go down this staircase and you pass by the opposing teams, whether it's baseball, football. The opposing team, baseball or football, they're in the same locker. We call it a clubhouse in baseball, a locker room in football. Same spot, whether it's you're playing against the A's or you're playing against the Raiders. And I'll never forget, Jose Altuve comes out, and we both look at each other. How you doing? And we basically walk down the stairs together, and we're walking down, and I can't believe, like, how short this guy is. I mean, it's like, it, 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 it what do they listen? Five six. All right, that's five six and spikes. I didn't have spikes on. I mean, I'm five nine, ish, and I couldn't believe how much taller I am than Jose Altuve. He's five. Six, they list him at five six, a hundred and sixty five pounds. God bless him. God bless him. What a player, and it just goes to show. It doesn't matter how big you are. It doesn't matter your weight, your height. If you can ball in our game, you can ball. He's an MVP. He's a six-time All-Star. He's a World Series champion. Five-time Silver Slugger Award winner. Three-time batting champion. Three-time. Think about that. He's only 29 years old. He's already won three. His career war, as of right now, is 38.5. He will be a Hall of Famer. You got guys you're trying to put into the Hall of Fame right now. That's their career war. Yes. and, uh, and He's just nine years in. And just uh, add ALCS MVP to that list of uh, accolades for him. By the way, I looked at Pete Rose from age 30 on to when he finished when he was 45. This is, this is why it's tough to catch Pete. He had 2,724 hits in those years from 30 to 45. Well, ju- just just all you got to do. Remember, he played till he was 45. We'll see if Altuve plays till he's 45. I mean, Ichiro did, but Ichiro started tailing off. Pete Rose, during that time, those he hit 299. So it's not like he tailed off completely. He was a 299 hitter from age 30 to 45 with a 770 OPS and a 115 OPS plus, which means he was above average throughout those years of his career. Okay. So if you have 200 hits for 20 years, okay, that just puts you at 4,000. You still got to get 256 hits to catch them after that. 20 years. You could have 20 straight years of 200 hits, and you still don't catch Pete. That that is incredible. Himbo, how you doing? It's Chris Townsend with the A's. Chris, what's up, buddy? How are you today? I am so excited. I just got back from – by the way, have you ever been to Lambeau Field? 
I've never been a Lambeau field, but it's a bucket list item for me and for any sports fan for that matter. Yeah, I got to tell you, I was just there with the Raiders, and it truly it, – it's so much better than I thought because it's it's more than just the stadium, the Hall of Fame. They basically own all the land around it, and they have so many bars and restaurants and fun. So I'm telling you right now, as a sports fan, you have to go. Those fans there are as good as any in the country. I did a Brewers game like two or three years ago with some buddies, like a Monday, 6 o'clock, meaningless game, and we have folks tailgating like three hours before. Like for a, for a baseball game in July, like on, like on a weekday, I was, I was blown away with, with the commitment and, and the whole, you know, the grilling setup and everything else. I, I, it was the coolest thing ever. So I'd imagine that, you know, the, the scene on a Sunday at Lambeau is that, you know, by a factor of 10. You do such a good job making everybody look good on the show Get Up on ESPN in the morning. And I have to tell you this. It might be the best set in all of television with the views of New York. I mean, it's incredible. It's, it's a really, really good setup. The worst 15 seconds of the day is that little camera shot over to me where every day, predictably, they get my trivia question wrong. Because, uh, you know, from a very, from very early age. Uh, not seen but heard, but either way, that, that's a super fun segment that we get to do, and I love the way that they have us set up in there. Like, we're, we are, like, we are over the East River, uh, you know, right next to the Brooklyn Bridge and Brooklyn right on the other side. It's a beautiful spot. When you get those sunrises, especially at this time of year, it's, a prime, it's prime territory. Yeah, so I'm looking at, at, at your notes that you supplied us, and I just, I don't know, I just, knowing the kind of starting pitching that the Nationals have, I'm just I'm kind of shocked the Astros are such favorites. Are you or do you agree with Vegas? Well, the Nationals played their 50th game of the season on May the 23rd. And since that date, they and the Astros have both played 122 games, including the playoffs. During that time, Washington is 82 and 40 with a plus 203 run differential. Houston, meanwhile, is 81 and 41 with a plus 192. So I don't take issue with the Astros being favored. But the notion that the Nats are this upstart underdog is debunked by literally five months of data that say otherwise. Yeah, so, I mean, what you've researched, you see this series being closer than people think. Most definitely. Like, we're not talking about, like, two months and sort of gerrymandering the numbers here. Like, their 50-game their start is well-documented. And the, and the Astros, for the last three years, have been a juggernaut. But this iteration of the Nationals, this group that made it this far – they're every bit as good as, as the Astros. And I would even argue that the National League was stronger than the American League this year in some sense just because you had fewer teams tanking. And the Astros were able to just beat up on some of those, on some of those slum dogs. And meanwhile, like the Nationals had to fight for positioning the playoffs for such a long time. But I feel like they've been awfully prepared to play this postseason and have been able to overcome those late deficits as a result. You know, we, we've we've had a lot of World Series over the years. There's no question about that. And and you know, you don't you you don't want to be a prisoner of the moment. But the reality of what we are going to see in Game One and what we are going to see in Game Two, the names on the back of the jerseys of the guys going to be going out there. I, I don't know. You've researched it. I don't know if we've seen a better Game One and Two matchup for starting pitchers in the history of the World Series. Never in World Series history have pitchers who combined for at least 550 regular season strikeouts deposed each other on the mound. But it's going to happen now twice in the next three days. Max Scherzer and Garrett Cole combined for 569, while Steven Strasburg and Justin Verlander combined for 551. And according to our friends at the Elias Sports Bureau, the record for such a thing had been 548. That was Bob Gibson and Benny McLean in 1968, the year of the pitcher, of course. They squared off in games one and four of the fall classic that year. So by one standard of measure, 
we're going to get the two best starting pitching matchups in the history of the World Series on back-to-back nights. And then the one thing that, you know, we talk a lot about in the, in the American League, and the, the A's are this way too, we had a little saying this year, ball goes far, team goes far, meaning the A's were very reliant on the home run to score. The Astros can be the same way. Nats not so much. Talk about the difference between the Astros and the Nats, and the Nats don't need a home run to beat you. No, I heard you making this point earlier. Recent history shows that homer-reliant teams don't fare as well in the fall classic as their counterparts. In the previous 10 years, only 34% of runs scored by World Series winners came via the home run. The average percentage for losers in that time is much higher, 45%. And that trend bodes well for the Nats. In the LCS, Washington scored only two of its 20 runs on homers, while 15 of Houston's 22 runs came that way. Further, the Nats have won three consecutive postseason games in which they failed to homer. The Astros have lost six straight such games dating to 2017. And I think late in games, though, if you're going to have to pick either bullpen, knowing the struggles that the Nats have had this year with the bullpen, wouldn't you say it'd be advantage Houston late in games? I would say so, but not by a terribly large margin. I mean, oh, look, your eyes and my eyes tell us the same thing most of the time. Watching Roberto Osuna pitch this postseason has not been that pleasant. Like, I don't know how you feel good <laughs> about the ball being in that guy's right hand. Like, Sean Doolittle and Daniel Hudson, to me, engender more confidence that, than that guy does, certainly. So, look, I think you're going to see starters on both sides really produce a lot of length. But this thing might, this thing might you know, break open like crazy late in, late in games because not only are neither bullpen deep, even the top-end guys in these, bull, in these bullpens has, have not been that effective. So we could see some low-scoring games early, and then this, this, like it's going to be like the 7th, the 8th, and the ninth innings, I think, could likely determine the outcomes here. We could see all sorts of craziness. I don't think that's outlandish to suggest. And the trend in baseball, everybody wants to go young, but these two teams are not young. They're made up of a lot of veterans. I love this note. While most teams are prioritizing that young, cost-control talent, like you said, the Astros and the Nets have built World Series teams doing the exact opposite. In fact, this year marks just the fifth time. This is a pretty lengthy research project. The fifth time that the oldest teams in both leagues meet in the World Series. Most recently, it happened when the Yankees and the Diamondbacks met in 2001. So in some sense, while the whole league is zigging in one direction, these teams have zagged a tad. And when you look at the free agent acquisitions that they've made and the trades that they've made to sort of assemble these rosters, I think, in a, at least in some sense, that those moves are the reason these teams are the last two ones standing. God, I love that stat. And it makes me think, okay, why is it? And it's just, is it because veteran guys end up being very resilient because a lot of these guys have a tremendous amount of experience? Well, resilient could certainly be, but even a lot more predictable. Like, the Cleveland Indians would be, have made the postseason this year if they had just chosen to sign Michael Brantley instead the Astros did that, and he ended up hitting hitting third for them like we with veterans at the very least you at least have a decent idea what to expect whereas uh, an international kid or a kid in the draft which is generally what these teams are choosing to do or a minor you know a, a minor league or a, a high profile minor league with all the tools it's just very hard to predict the outcomes right with, with these veterans that's why look if you look at what the Astros gave up for Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole it should make the uh, Tigers and Pirates fans legit vomit. Like you, I, I can't fathom how cheap they got those guys just because they were willing to pay them. That, in my judgment, is the new market inefficiency. Yeah, I mean that's you know, it, it, it's, everybody wants to unload salary, and it's like it's like when you look at those names that that you gave up for two of the best pitchers, you're like, what? Are you? And, and you know what? 
it's 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 only money. And the thing is, when you win the World Series like the Astros did in 2017 and the fact that they're back in it, we learned from the San Francisco Giants, you're just printing money when you go to the World Series. Daz Cameron, Franklin Perez, Jake Rogers, Michael Feliz, Jason Martin, Colin Moran, and Joe Musgrove. That is a who's who of who's that. In exchange for two Hall of Fame pitchers, that is why the Astros are in the World Series this year. And just two years removed from being in the World Series with a juggernaut offensively, they were able to just you know, figure this thing out sort of on the fly and acknowledge that the rest of the league doesn't value these veteran power arms the way that, other, you know, that they do. And as a result, here they are. You know, whether it's on Get Up or, or listening to you on, on Buster's podcast, Baseball Tonight, which is second to none in our sport, just how much fun do you have at your job coming up with all these nuggets? <laughs> um, nobody has a better job than I do. And everyone always asks. I mean, these, most of my friends, um, you, know, you know, work on Wall Street or they have business jobs because, you know, I flunked out of business school. I, always, I, I, I wish I got paid what they do, but they all wish that I got to do what they got to do what I do. So, like, it, imagine waking up every morning. Like, when I was, you know, in high school and college, like, I would spend all my time, you know, finagling my fantasy baseball roster. That's pretty much my job now. So it's uh, it's good work if you can get it, as I like to say. So when when you're looking at because you need to supply, you know, the talent, which is great talent that you guys have at ESPN, you're supplying them with with all all of this knowledge and these nuggets. Which of the sports is the toughest to research and to find this great stuff? Well, I'm a lifelong I'm a lifelong baseball fan, and as a result, it just comes easily and naturally for me. Whereas uh, I don't, I don't have like this sort of ex- expansive uh, NBA background, for example, and it's much harder to research the NBA, believe it or not, than it is Major League Baseball and the NFL, just because of the resources available. I mean, look, ESPN has more resources for research purposes than practically any entity, and the money that we spend for those resources and the way that we train people to use them really is second to none. But for me, like baseball is the fun part, even though Get Up doesn't do a ton of baseball, like that's sort of like my fun little hobby on the side. Whereas, as you know, we're just pounding NFL every single day and that's yeah. all well and good because that's what you know the national audience generally wants but basically anytime we get a chance to talk baseball you better believe I got my grubby hands in that cookie jar oh I love it all right you have crunched the numbers the fall classic starts tomorrow do you like the Astros or do you like the Nationals I like the Nationals I'm picking the Nationals to win the series in seven games I can't find many folks who will agree with me but in my judgment they have demonstrated they've had four starting pitchers that can consistently get out, whereas the Astros really only have two, and even Justin Verlander has been shaky. Bullpens, I think you have identified it correctly, the Astros an advantage, albeit slightly. And while I think the Astros clearly have a better lineup, I'm not sure if they line up better suited to win the World Series in a series that will likely include a lot of strikeouts, a lot of swing and miss. If it becomes a shootout, I favor Houston. If it becomes the kind of World Series that we've grown to expect over the last 10 years when the ball's not flying all over the place like it's a home run derby, I favor the Nationals. My only concern is that extensive layoff has really hurt teams in recent years. But if they could find a way to split in Houston, which I'm predicting, the Nationals are going to win this series. Well, you're a baseball guy. This is a baseball show. And I got to tell you, every single time you come on, we are all smarter because of it. <laughs> well, that, that is that is the utmost compliment that you can that you can provide a researcher. So it's uh, it's very kind of you to say. And uh, as you know, you can call anytime. I'll always pick up the phone. Hembo, you're the best. Continued success. And we'll talk to you soon. You're a good man. 
Well, our next guest here on A's Cast Live is a true baseball legend as a two-time World Series champion, a two-time All-Star. He's in the Cardinals Hall of Fame, one of the great broadcasters we ever had in the game. Tim McCarver is with us. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time, and how are you? Uh, I, it's a pleasure, first of all, Chris. I catch you uh, occasionally. Uh, I've got a place in Napa that, uh, that I bought about eight years ago and uh, love the area. And uh, what, a, what a job the A's do continually, year in, year out. As far as me personally, I am doing beautifully. Thank you. Well, I can tell you, as a guy who's a Ford C. Frick Award winner and all the great games that you called, we truly miss you on TV. Your insight was second to none. Well, I, I really appreciate that, Chris. But I kind of hung them up uh, uh, in 2013. And uh, that was my last series, the Cardinals and, and the Red Sox. The Red Sox won that, of course. But, um, uh, but I'm doing a few Cardinal games. I do um, 25 to 30 Cardinal games a year, and that kind of keeps me out of trouble. And I think about going into this World Series. The Astros are heavy favorites, but as you know, pitching is everything in the postseason. And with that pitching that the Washington Nationals have, they definitely have a puncher's chance. There is no question about it. Uh, when you have starting pitchers uh, like they do, uh, to me it's three and three. I mean, there are three great starting pitchers for the Astros, three great starting pitchers uh, uh, for, the, uh, for the Nationals, and uh, the Nationals also uh, have their fourth guy who started against the Cardinals and almost pitched a no-hitter for crying out loud. Yeah, there's, I mean, I, 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 I were you shocked? Annabelle Sanchez, the name escaped me there for a while. Annabelle Sanchez yeah. is who I'm talking about. Are, are you shocked that the Astros are such favorites over the Nationals because of their four starters? You know, you know what? I, I think, no, no, I'm not. Uh, I, the, the Astros played about as uh, defiantly perfect game uh, the other night against the Yankees. I mean, what team can come back after the, the home run uh, by, the, uh, by the second baseman uh, and uh, a two-run shot to tie it in the ninth inning? What team can come back from that? And they did it behind Altuve. Uh, I, hear, uh, I hear J.J. Watt, the magnificent uh, tackle, for Houston, uh, had an Altuve shirt on yesterday underneath his pad, <laughs> <laughs> which, I, which I think is great. I mean, that town is wild about this team. Uh, I don't think it's a bit uh, a big surprise that they're favored by as much as they are. No. Well, you know, these what... Guys, you know what these guys do, Chris? They, 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 nothing is routine that their hitters hit. They every time they're at the plate. Uh, it's a special at that. You get a feeling that they're going to do something to enhance their team. You talk about a throwback as much as any team. What's refreshing about this Houston team is that uh, they remind you of so many of the great, great teams in, uh, in the past, 50, 60 years ago, the Yankee teams, the dynasties, things like that. That's how good they are. I remember I worked with Ralph Kiner for 16 years in the Mets booth. And I used to ask him about, I said, Jack, what is the, uh, or, or I used to say, Ralph, uh, what is the, uh, the thing you remember most about Jackie Robinson? And he said, getting out of a rundown. And I thought, that's, that 
speaks millions because it really uh, it it it, uh, it speaks about his ability, uh, his track ability, his running, his stopping and starting, and things like that. And uh, what did the what did the Astros do the other night? They got a couple of runs on getting out of rundowns, or at least uh, getting the most out of rundowns. They they're a unique ball club. I haven't seen a team like this in a long, long time. That that's going to be together for for quite a while. You know, when I think about a town getting behind a team, you would know as good as anybody as St. Louis and their great relationship with the Cardinals. Just talk about that, what that's like as a player when you truly know the entire town is, like, raising you up and they're behind you. Yeah, and, it, and it, you know what, Chris? It's always been like that. Uh, I, I signed when I was 17 years old. Things were a little different uh, back in 1959. I signed out of high school. And I, I knew the Cardinals were the favorite team of a lot of uh, people from Memphis. I'm from Memphis, about 290 miles away from, from St. Louis. So I go to St. Louis, and I'm interviewed. I signed with the team. I was a bonus baby and all that sort of stuff. I got interviewed by Harry Carey, everybody's idol, <laughs> all through the, the Midwest at the time. He was with the Cardinals for 25 years and never even thought of going to Chicago at the time. But um, it, it was it was so much fun to be part of that uh, that team and and when I signed the Cardinals were were down a little bit uh, back in the late fifties but it didn't take them long uh, to to start you know uh, answering the bell and we won tennis and World Series in sixty four sixty seven then we lost to Detroit in sixty eight uh, but it, it's phenomenal the way that town is is uh, behind the Cardinals. Uh, just like the the Houston uh, Houston Texas is behind uh, behind the Astros, it's it's really refreshing for baseball. And I think that game the other night drew a little bit of people as far as viewing audience is concerned for the whole for the uh, uh, for the World Series, don't you? I mean, oh, it was unbelievable. Oh yeah, I mean it's uh, this is going to be a lot. Both both towns are are so juiced about baseball right now, and you know we they want are. we want to talk to you about because we just had the anniversary of the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake, where of course the A's went up beating the Giants. You were a part of that. What was that like for you as a broadcaster? Well, I'll tell you, Chris, I was on the air. Uh, yeah. Dave Parker, Dave Parker had just missed a home run. Al Michaels had just thrown it uh, to me, and uh, Dave Parker in game two had played in Oakland, of course, uh, had just missed a home run by inches, and we had that as a rundown, and the minute I started talking, I could feel that train come rumbling through. I'd never been in an earthquake before. Um, the, uh, the funny thing was Jim Palmer's birthday is the 15th of October. Mine's the 16th. This is the 17th, and Al Michaels the night before had taken us to the original Trader Vic's wow. uh, in, in San Francisco. And, uh, and then we had a, a Budweiser meeting on the way to the ballpark the next day and anxious, naturally, for, for a 5 o'clock start. And at 5.04, uh, Al had thrown it to me, and when the train came rumbling through, uh, that I euphem- euphemistically use, uh, Al and I are on the floor, and Jim Palmer's ready to go on the air, and we have no, we have no, uh, uh, we can't, we have no juice. We can't go on the air, and Jim is kind of frozen in time. There, we're all in shock, uh, 
um, I remember Johnny Bench and Jack Buck were doing radio in the booth next to us. And I asked uh, JB later, I said, what were you thinking about over there? He was, he said, I was trying to find a place that was safe to jump. And he was serious. He, you know, the, 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 where the broadcasters are in, in old candlestick, uh, it was about an, I guess an 80 foot drop or something like that into the stands. And John was very, very serious when he said that. Wow. It was scary. It was very, very scary. What can you say? Yeah, but you know what, though? We, we, we just celebrated that 1989 team. Boy, were they special in their Tony LaRusse, all the talent they had. Boy, were they good. I mean, you know, they, they of course, it was foreign out against the Giants, but uh, and only uh, what the two starters, Moore and uh, Dave Stewart, of course. Dave Stewart won two, Moore won two. Uh, <clears throat> but it, it was so exciting for the whole area, the only Bay Area uh, uh, teams that have met in the World Series. But it was it was really uh, it was fascinating, and uh, I'd love to see a World Series similar to that this year. Let's end on this. It drives me nuts, and it's got to drive you nuts. Starting pitchers going five innings, four innings, five <laughs> innings. We need really? some more, you know, guys that, that you played with. I, I think of Bob Gibson. I think of Steve Carlton. I mean, we need more Bob Gibsons in this game. It can, I can't stand starters only going five. Well, I've answered that question quite a bit because I caught Gibson. I caught Carlton for so many years. And just, you know, as an example with Bob Gibson, um, he had 34 starts in 1968. He had 28 complete games and 34 starts. <laughs> they don't have 28 complete games in leagues nowadays. Uh, but uh, Bob, who is not doing real well right now, and we certainly wish him well. He's back at home in, in Omaha. He's had cancer <clears throat> for several years. And, uh, and if anybody can beat it, he will. Guaranteed. If it can be done, he'll do it. No doubt, and what a great pitcher. What a great duo you guys were. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time. Enjoy the World Series, and we'd love to chat again soon. You're great, Chris. I'd, I'd love to. I'll do that anytime you want. Thank you. Well, now joining us here on A's Cast Live, he's one of our all-time favorites. What a great player he was. Uh, what a career that he had as a World Series champion. And then as a manager, Bob Melvin credits him for making him the manager that he is today. Scrap Iron joins us from the farm in Texas, Phil Garner. Phil, how have you been? I'm doing well, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Chris. So, I, I could use a little uh, strong arm, weak back, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm going to be in Houston next week with the uh, Raiders. Maybe I'll stop by and help you with the tractor. I, uh, stay, stay a day, will you? I, I can really use the help. <laughs> well, I think about the Houston Astros. Of course, you manage the Astros. You got the Astros into the World Series. You don't live that far from Houston. And what a time it is for this organization as they've won a World Series and now they're the heavy favorite tomorrow starting against the Washington Nationals at home. Life is really good for the Astros these days well I, I have to say that i had sort of uh over the years kind of not uh i'm a great i love baseball when i'm playing it or i'm managing it coaching it i, I the game is a lot of fun but, but i kind of had lost interest as a fan and uh i'll tell you these guys have made it a lot of fun they are so much fun to watch and 
And I have to say, and this was before this last home run, but Altuve was the one that got me going back in when I first saw him play. I said, this guy's having so much fun, and he, he is, he's doing what you're supposed to do in baseball. It's a fun game to play. He is having a good time. <laughs> he is just delightful to watch. Yeah, and and you know what's great about him, too, is it just goes to show in our game, it doesn't matter how big you are, it doesn't matter how strong you are, uh, you can be any size and still be great in the game of baseball. Well, I, I that's true, and you're certainly seeing that play out now. I, all these, you're seeing a lot of things on the internet that, between Altuve and, and Judge out of New York now, and they're absolutely hilarious, right? And they're, you know, the two of them are standing side by side. It's it's you see the the extremes of the sport, and both guys are tremendous players, and both guys can win. And as we just saw, you know, when I think about your career, you got to come up and be around one of the great teams of all time, as you were around these guys that won the World Series in '73 and '74. You really got your your big breakout in '75. But what was that like as a young player coming up and being around that greatness that was the Oakland A's? Yeah, it was hard. It was were tough, and you know, back in those days, hazing was alive and well. And so, when you're the rookie. You were the brunt of everything in those days. I have to say, though, it it made me feel like a part of the team, and uh, I I wouldn't certainly have the experience to go back and do it any other way than it just happened. But those guys were uh, really special, and I you know you see a lot of comparisons to teams in the past, but they win three World Series, and and people just don't realize how tough that is. It's hard to win one World Series. It's, it's almost impossible to win two in a row, but when you win three, that's that's pretty remarkable. So uh, my hat's off to those old guys. They were great players and, and great people. Well, and then you go on, and you get to play on another great team. When you think of the We Are Family Pittsburgh Pirates, what a special time that was. And I really re- that, that's like really the first team that I remember as a kid. I grew up in San Diego, and you guys would come to town. And, you know, the Pirates, you guys were such a big deal. Take us through that time, the We Are Family Pittsburgh Pirates. Well, you, you, you know, you went through the Oakland A's, which you couldn't – they call them the swinging A's, and uh, some other people had a, a little different besides swinging on that uh, adjective <laughs> in front of the A's. And, but, you know, they, they were a bunch of tough guys. And somebody had, at one time said if you throw a dollar at home plate, the Oakland A's would kill each other trying to get it. And there was a lot to that. I, I don't think that you – you know, that you would never – describe the Oakland A's as family. They were great players, and they knew how to how to come together and to play games, how to win. I wouldn't say that they were exactly close-knit as an entire group. Actually, some enterprising reporter at one time said there were 14 fights that the A's were involved in, and that was just among themselves. That didn't include <laughs> uh, the other teams, you know. I think Billy North was in about 12 of those. Somehow you didn't see that with the Pittsburgh Pirates. And, and, of course, there was a major reason reason for that is I was the fiery one in the group, Tim Foley and myself. And we were always liking to pick fights, but there's no way I want to pick a fight with six foot five Dave Parker, six foot six, 275 pound Jim Bibby, six foot four Willie Stargell, John Candelaria, six foot seven. So, you know, these, these guys are my bodyguard. They're backing me up. So I wasn't whooping. On our team wanted to fight among ourselves, 
there were too many bad guys on there. We wanted to fight the other guys. So I, I think the the uh, uh, moniker that was that we had, we are family, was pretty good. And it's interesting because we had guys from uh, as as typical with a lot of baseball teams. We had you know a couple. Of, we had Panamanian, uh, uh, our center fielder uh, Omar Marino from Panama, Fanny Sanguin. Uh, we had guys from the uh, nice neighborhoods, middle-class neighborhoods, to the poor neighborhoods, both black and white, uh, you know, on the team. So we had we had all walks of life and different cultures in the clubhouse, but we were a close-knit group. So we, our family, was, was a good uh, way to describe those Pittsburgh Pirates. And, and as good as we were, we only won one World Series. And when you compare it to the Oakland A's, that, uh, we came up a little bit short. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, it's tough to win three in a row, and only the Yankees and the A's have done it, so it's a very tough feat. And, you know, the Astros, having just won in 17, if you win again in 19, such a big deal. And and just talk about, you're not too far away from Houston, but just, I, I, know, I know Texas is all about football, but right now it's just beautiful to see how much in the great state of tax, Texas everybody is loving baseball. Well, I... I, listen, nobody can deny that that when you go to a Saturday night uh, football game and you get into the playoffs with high school football on Friday night, and there can be 25,000 and up at a high school football game. That's you know, it's a pretty good football stone. But the Astros have made this a baseball community, and I, when I was managing the Astros and we we got to the World Series, I, to this day I get people that will recognize me and totally flattered by it. You know, you brought our families together. Our kids were off to college. They all came home. We watched the World Series. We had a great time. We communicated. It was a wonderful time. And and the same thing's happening now, except this has been a not just a one-year run. This has been a three-year, three-year, going on four-year run now. These guys are great players. They're fun to watch. Always the playoffs World Series are, are great times. But these guys are fun to watch during the season, too. And, and uh so I think they made made this a baseball town, baseball area, not just the Houston area. The baseball, I mean, it, this goes out beyond the, the radio radius. It, it does encompass a lot of people that are many hours away from Houston that have become fans. Yeah, I think about Bob Melvin, a three-time manager of the year, and, I, and you know exactly, having been out here not too long ago, you know exactly what he means to this franchise and to this fan base. What was it that you saw in Bob Melvin that you went, you know what, this guy's going to manage someday? Well, first off, you know, you have to be a student of the game as you're, when you're a player. There's a lot of games that play, a lot of guys that play the game, and, and a lot of the game can come naturally to them. But the guys that have to struggle and have to figure out a way to fit and figure out a way to, to stay on teams – are usually the guys that learn the nuances of the sport. They 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 learn well. You know, you're going to be able to pitch. You got to be able to hit. And how do pitchers pitch to get people out? How do people hit? How do you move runners? How do you how do you get things going? And that's one thing. Second thing is catchers generally are guys that make pretty good managers because they have to know how to manage a pitching staff. If they're worth their weight at all, they they've learned how to manage a pitching. And then the, the third and final part of that story is you have to have the right mental makeup. And it, what I saw in Bob the first time was that I am not a detailed or, or any guy. I'm pretty good with the big picture and, 
and I'm I can have fun with the press and everything else, but I am I don't I don't like to keep my nose to the grindstone and the details. And and Bob is a very detailed guy. So I, I recall the first day we had spring training, and we'd spent um, a few weeks with Bob. But he was going to be running spring training for me, and he was going to be uh, uh, making sure all the schedule was was to go exactly on time. And the first day of spring training, after about 45 minutes into it, and we'd had three rotations, he came up to me, and he's sweating, and I'm sitting there smiling, enjoying myself. And he's just, <laughs> I don't know how you do it. This is driving me crazy. I said, that's exactly right. You are the one under all the strings. Thank you. I can see everybody. I can enjoy what they're doing. I can see where we need to improve. That's where Bob helped me originally. So I knew he was going to go on to, to be able to handle a ball club and do the right things. And as great as there have been a couple of managers this year that you can you can uh, put in that mix for the uh, Manager of the Year award, but none of them are any better than Bob Melvin. That's a fact. Well, I'll be there on Saturday to help you at the ranch. I'll be ready to go. I'll, I'll bring my work, my work. I'll bring my tool belt, and we'll, we'll, we'll get that barn up. Uh, well, listen, you don't need the tool belt, baby. You're going to be lifting stuff. You think you're going to be working. There are blisters on those hands. <laughs> There's no blisters on these hands. I may, I may not be very good for you, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I actually am going to be at the football game on Saturday, so uh, or Sunday rather. So we may run into each other. I'll look for you. Hey, it's always an honor to have you on the program. Good luck to you and your wife on the farm, right. and hopefully we'll see you on Sunday. All right, very good, Chris. See you. Later. Take care, Bye. JJ. Chris Townsend with the Oakland Athletics. Thank you for coming on again. We appreciate it. Happy to join you, Gus. How are you doing? Uh, we're just getting fired up for the World Series after Houston clinched, and you're starting to look at this pitching matchup, and people talking about this could be the greatest pitching matchup for starters that we've ever seen in the World Series. I do feel like I missed two great ones. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's a doubt about that. I would probably put up maybe those Yankees-Braves series in, in our life, and the Yankees-Braves in the, in the 90s were, were pretty impressive as well. But I just think it, at the end of the day, the thing that stands out to me is, is I do think that the Astros lineup's deeper. I think defensively they're as good, if not a little bit better. And, and as, so as good as the, the two pitching staffs are, I kind of put those as maybe a wash. And if that's the case, I, I'm probably still going Astros because of the hitters. Yeah, and the thing about these two rosters is that they're both veteran rosters. As, as the game is going younger, and we're going to talk to you about less minor league teams, these are two veteran clubs we're going to see in the fall classic. Yes, there, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, you have some guys who, I you have a on Houston side, you have pretty much a lineup who most of all these guys had have been here before. On on Washington side, that's less true, but it is absolutely the Anthony Rendon's, the uh, you know the Zimmermans. These are you know the the pitching staff. I mean, just these are all guys who have seen a whole lot of baseball over their lives. It is two veteran teams. I don't, and I don't think that really. The reality is, is nowadays how the postseason works. I don't think the World Series is all that different, you know, as far as the environment from the uh, LCSs. And so, at this point, just in this season, even the Juan Sotos of the world, even the young guys, have absolutely had a lot of playoff experience because you have to have a lot of playoff experience just to get to this point. 
Yeah, that is actually a great point that I've never thought of. Thank you, JJ, because, uh, you know, back in the day, if you won the American League or you won the National League, you immediately played in the World Series. Now that we've added wild card games and we have more playoffs than ever before, yeah, you're right. By the time you get to the World Series, you've already been in so much action already. You've seen the bullets flying. Juan Soto knows he can perform in playoff baseball because Juan Soto has already performed in playoff baseball. So when you look at this matchup, do you do 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 you see the Astros as that big of a favorite as what Vegas is telling us? Yes, I mean I just think they're the better team. Now the better team does not win a seven-game series every time by any stretch of the imagination, um, but they were. That the the Astros Yankees series was very arguably the matchup of the two best teams in baseball, and at the end of the day, they ended up winning that relatively handily. I mean, I, yes, it went six games. Yes, they won on a walk off in the sixth game, but it didn't go seven. And I think when it's all said and done, you have to fairly say that they were the better team in that in that series. Nothing against the Nationals. This national team absolutely can win this World Series. But at the same time, no one would say, I mean, again, over the course of 162, the Nationals had a great finish to the season. If you erase that first 50 games, they were really, really good. The Astros were really, really good from the day they arrived in spring training in February until now. They're just, again, they're, they're going for their second World Series title in a very short period of time. This is a team trying to become, trying to prove that they're a dynasty. Yeah, I was thinking about it, and J.J. Cooper from Baseball America joins us here, A's Cast Live with Chris Towns, and it was like, so so the Yankees really got to see what it's like to play in the American League West as, as we get to see the Astros so much. And, it's, and, and, J.J., it's hard to believe two straight years, the A's have won 97 games, and all that gets you is into the wild card game. And not only just gets you in the wild card game, the reality of this is, in both cases, doesn't really get you that close to winning the division, which 90, I mean, that's a lot of wins. I mean, that's something that there are a whole lot of divisions over the past, you know, over the wild card era where 97 wins would win you the division running away. But that's just how good this Astros team has been that you pretty much right now, you go into the season knowing if you don't win 100, you're probably not going to have a chance to win the division. So I read your article about paring down the minor leagues. And when I think about the minor leagues, nobody covers the minor leagues better than Baseball America. I I understand it could be cost-cutting, could help teams. I'm just not sure less professional baseball, especially in the middle of America where a lot of people can't get to big league games, is actually good for the actual sport. What's your opinion on maybe paring down the minor leagues? Well, I, I've been trying to kind of keep my opinion out of it as much as I can because I'm trying to cover it fairly on both sides, major league side and minor league side. But I will say, like, the point you're raising is, a, is one that minor league baseball understandably raises, which is it's not just about developing the most efficient player development system you can. Let's just start with this is not a system that was ever developed. This we are the current minor league system that we have, the, the, the levels that we have. We have, you know, triple-A, double-A, high-A, low-A, short-season rookie, and complex rookie. That all has sprung up not because someone ever sat down one day and said, 
what is the most efficient way that we can develop players. It sprung up organically in the 1800s and then has been kind of stuffed into an organization the way that it is. I mean, that, that it was kind of, it grew, and then they said, okay, this is what we've got. But there are a lot of benefits to that, which you just hit on a big one, which is, for instance, I, you know, we are, Baseball America is based in Durham, North Carolina. We are located, we are five hours plus driving distance from any major league ballpark. So, for instance, my kids, you know, I'm a giant baseball fan, as you would imagine. My kids have been to one major league baseball game in their life, but they've been to, you know, double digits of minor league games. If they're going to be baseball fans, you know, as they grow up, it's not going to be the experience of going to a major league park because that's just really not a practical experience. Well, this proposal obviously does not get rid of minor league baseball, but it's, and it's an initial proposal. It's a first proposal by NLB. However, if that proposal was adopted as proposed, it would mean that 40-plus teams, clubs, cities around the around the you know, would be would no longer have affiliated minor league baseball. Now, the plan would also try to figure out ways that they would continue to have baseball of some sort, whether it's uh, this dream league that's kind of like a half indie ball, half minor league baseball, or summer wood bat leagues where you have college players playing in summer. But that's not the same thing as being the uh, the short season affiliate of a club, you know, or the you know, uh, and being able to say. I saw so-and-so on his way up to the majors. It's a, it's a different environment than the one that currently does exist. And to me, that really means something, right? Like if a King Griffey Jr. or a Barry Bonds or, or a whoever comes through your town and you watch him go from, let's say, high A to double A to triple A to the big leagues – a, a kid like yours, your kids get to watch that, then they follow them into the big leagues, and now they're a fan of that team to where if we're going to take out a bunch of these teams, you could see people in middle of America not watching baseball at all anymore. Um, I, I grew up, uh, I'm from uh, the middle of uh, Georgia. Macon, Georgia is right up the road from where I grew up, but that, that's also where I first worked out of college. And if they, at the time, they had the low-class they make and break. They don't anymore. They left for Rome. But they, at the time, they had the make and break. And if you asked anyone in Macon about the make and break, what would almost assuredly come out of their mouths and did over and over and over is, yeah, Chipper Jones was here in Macon in, in 1991, had a great year, kind of really got him going on his way to Atlanta. And they were quite proud of that fact. Now, you know, right now, if you are – in Bluefield, West Virginia, you could say that you saw Vladimir Guerrero Jr. as a 17-year-old. Um, you know, Ronald Acuna played in Danville. Like, there's these there's these very small towns that uh, you know got a chance to to see stars on their way up. At the same time, one of the reasons that Major League Baseball has proposed this is the facilities in many of these cities are not the stadiums are not at the level that you would probably expect in in 2019 coming into 2020 and i will be the first to tell you having gone to several of these they are not at the level of what you would say a a good division one college uh program stadium facilities would be like and so 
one of the things that, that MLB is proposing here to kind of give some some weight to their you know, argument is Major League Baseball wants the facilities that their minor league players, because they're provided by the major league team, that their minor league players play in to be significantly upgraded. And at the end of the day, what they're essentially saying with this is, is we do not believe that these 40 ballparks that we're talking about have any chance of getting to that. Now, that doesn't mean they're right. In 1990, there was a very contentious professional baseball agreement between major and minor league baseball. And at the time, after it was signed, many of the minor league teams said, there is no way that we'll be able to meet these upgraded facility requirements. And in actuality, what ended up happening over the next four years, there was a building boom around minor league baseball. And it really boosted minor league baseball attendance because they found that a lot more fans wanted to come to a game in a modern up-to-date ballpark than one that was built in the thirties. And so it really led to a boom for minor league baseball. At this time, the proposal is not to upgrade facilities as it is to upgrade facilities, but it's also to say the bottom quarter, the bottom 25% of minor league baseball, we're just going to lop off and, and have them do other things. But, the facilities at a lot of places are below the standard that you would expect in 2019. So this could be a business ploy then, like a threat like, hey, you better upgrade or you're going to go away, which obviously we see in business all the time. We're seeing with the the threat for the Rays to play in Montreal. Recently, Rob Manfred was out here for the wild card game and brought up the threat of, of Las Vegas. Do you think this is more a threat or a reality? I think it's too early to tell. Um, the reality of it is, is that this was not a off the cuff. Here's what we want to do. This was a a relatively fully formed plan, which does lead me to believe that it's more than just a negotiating ploy. At the same time, I also do not think that it's something written in stone by any stretch. You know, Major League Baseball's you can call them demands, well, if you want, so negotiations. So let's call them demands. Major League Baseball wants their players to play in better facilities. They want them to play in leagues that are more geographically located, closer to their major league affiliates. They want the travel to be, they want their their players to travel less, which means reorganizing the minors. And they also do not like the current PDC format where every, or effectively every two years, teams can swap their affiliations. So, you know, and, and the A's have seen some of this happen, you yeah. know, where, you know, you can go from being a, you can be in one city one year and the next year you're somewhere else. Well, Major League Baseball wants those to become much more long-term and really wants to take more control over those. They want it to be something where, the you know, to just take an example, the Mets don't ever have to worry about playing in Las Vegas like they did a few years ago where their AAA team was all the way across the country. They don't want the Nationals. The Nationals uh, AAA affiliate right now is in Fresno. They don't want that to happen. They want teams to be something where if whatever your major league club is, is you don't worry that your minor league clubs are far, far away from your major league city unless that's something that you want to do. Um, so really they want a lot of it is that they want more control over the process, which in the past has been minor league baseball's domain. Minor league baseball determines the league structure. Minor league baseball determines, uh, you know, when a team moves from one city to another. Minor League Baseball determines travel, scheduling, all that. Affiliations 
are an agreement, but it's one that minor league baseball teams have a lot of power in. Really, in many ways, what Major League Baseball is saying here is, is there is an, uh, a part of this that is, is that they want more power, more say in some of these decisions. Well, a lot of what you just said about what baseball wants, I would agree with them from a business standpoint, wouldn't you? Again, I'm really trying to keep my opinion <laughs> out of it because i gotta, I got yeah. to report both sides of these fairly. But I would say, I, I'll say it this way. If you talk to people all the way through minor league baseball, there is absolutely an understanding that facilities have to improve. There's no doubt about that. The last major facility standards rules were set in 1990. No one in, a, in minor league baseball thinks that that is up to date for baseball in 2020. I mean, partly because there's a lot more people. Coaching staffs in the minors are a lot bigger now than they were 30 years ago. Um, there was not a video, you know, a video, a video analyst with every minor league team like there is now. There, so there, there was not a nutritionist. You know, back then, there really, in a lot of cases, there was no food being prepared specifically for the players. Now there is the need to be able to do food prep. There needs to be a place for the players to eat. You need expanded weight rooms and conditioning areas compared to what it was 30 years ago. All those things, there's kind of an agreement all the way around that those things need to happen. But now comes the question also with that of, okay, what's a reasonable time frame to get that done? And I think you would very much find that on Major League Baseball side, they would say this needs to happen relatively quickly. And on minor league baseball side, they would say, we don't disagree that this needs to happen, but you have to understand that these things move slowly because you're going to have a lot of different part, you know, parties involved and, and the wheels of government, you know, especially if you're going to get government funding to help do this, that moves relatively slowly. So they're looking at a, a expanded time frame. But I think also minor league baseball would absolutely agree at this point that that some of the travel in minor league baseball makes no sense. Um, I, again, in my area, we have the Lake, Lakewood, New Jersey, and Rome, Georgia, are in the same league, and it's a bus league. Ooh. You know, it's a league where people, you know, the players ride buses. That's a that that's a full day in a bus, and a lot of you know teams do not have sleeper buses. Well. If you have a sleeper bus, it's a, it's a little bit different story than if you just have a regular bus for a trip like that. But Major League Baseball absolutely wants some of that travel reduced. And if you ask Minor League Baseball, they don't really disagree. They, they know at the end of the day that makes sense. But, again, I would also say, though, that a lot of that is, is okay, there's some general agreement that needs to happen. That doesn't mean in any way that there's agreement of how it's going to happen how quickly it needs to happen, things like that. JJ, really good stuff. We really appreciate it. You guys are second to none at Baseball America. Enjoy the World Series, and we'll be in touch this offseason. Sounds good. Brad, how you doing? It's Chris Townsend with the Oakland Athletics. I'm doing, I'm doing good, man. How about yourself? Uh, we're doing wonderful, especially after game one. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun to watch. That Are, are you actually down in Houston right now? No, I'm in uh, Colorado. I'm in Colorado. I do the uh, I do the SiriusXM 
radio show uh, from my house in Colorado. But yeah, that's uh, that's where that's where I grew up, and that's where my family's at. So yeah, when you're doing the show from home, it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> I'll tell you what, man, you can't beat it. You can't beat it. So <laughs> I love I'm, it. I'm entrenched. So I had to ask you, as a guy that you know, World Series champion, you've been an All Star. Uh, you, you you played for the Astros. Just just watching the matchup of star pitchers again. When we're so into this bullpenning thing, how just great is it to see star starting pitchers going in game one, going in game two, and, and how good it is for the game? You know, honestly, it's it, it's so great to watch because. I mean, we get so locked into 2019 and all the home runs that are happening and, and how that just kind of becomes the theme of the year is just home runs and, and offense and everything else. And all of a sudden now we get these incredible pitchers and, um, you know, even if there are a couple long ball shots, which inevitably there will be because you got, you know, the, the Astros are going to hit some home runs. The Nationals will too. But you at least get some great starting pitching and, uh, you know, you can really appreciate that aspect of the game. It's like almost – you're always wanting to cheer for offense all year, but now in the in the playoffs, you remember, oh yeah, great starting pitching is what wins, and you have an effort like Max Scherzer did, where even if he doesn't have his best command and, and location, he's still able to grind out five innings and and uh, and get a win, and that is part of great starting pitching. So I love watching it, and then tonight we get another bonus uh, with uh, with Strauss and Verlander. Uh, you played in that ballpark, Soto's home run up in the train tracks from a left-handed hitter. You ever seen that before? I, I so I was talking about this on the radio show today. I've literally never seen anything like that before, not from any left-handed hitter. Uh, believe me, I've given up, uh, you know, a home run up on those train tracks, a pretty famous one. But but I've never. But that was a right hand. That was Albert Pools. I mean, the guy's got endless power, and he's right-handed, and he pulled it. So I can see that. But seeing a left-handed hitter go up there, that who, by the way, chokes up on the bat an inch or two every time he steps up in the box, I had never seen anything like that. Never in my time in Houston had I seen a lefty go up there, uh, and I don't remember ever seeing a game where a lefty did, you know, after I retired. So uh, that was extraordinarily impressive. And I, I, I have to tell you, people that have, you know, watched Bryce Harper and all the opposite field power that he has over his career, uh, they, they say Soto's got every bit of that. And uh, obviously he has, like, ridiculous discipline to, uh, to uh, kind of combine with that uh, massive power package. And he's only 20 years old. And he's only 20. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's look, it's just one of those deals where you can't teach it. It's just it's a gift uh, from from God, and he just he's able to um, understand the, such a mature. I mean, a lot of times you don't see 30, 31, 32 year olds understand the strikes and like that. Even the good ones, um, but to be twenty years old and to have that discipline, uh, to know what to do with the baseball, to be able to rela- react as the ball gets kind of deep, but still have the power to drive it out the other way. Um, I don't know. I mean, he's, uh, you know, we, we talk about these once-in-a-generation players. Uh, he, he, I think he might be that guy. I think he might top anybody we're seeing in the game right now when he, you know, as far as offense goes, when he gets going in his prime. And something we've seen the last couple of years, and I like seeing it, is when we start seeing starters come out of the bullpen, guys that can really give you length and flip over a lineup. That's been a trend that I've enjoyed. How about you? Oh, for sure. I, and I think the one thing is that, you know, they definitely – uh, not everyone's going to go out there and have success right away. Um, it, it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, when you do put those great starters, those aces out there in the bullpen, it is really fun to watch them come in and do their thing and most of the time blow down the other hitters. 
But certainly, you know, listen, the, the first couple outings Patrick Corbin had coming out of that bullpen uh, against the Dodgers, they weren't necessarily great or stellar. He kind of had to learn what he was doing. Uh, obviously, we saw Clayton Kershaw come out of the bullpen, and, and that did not work out well for the Dodgers. So it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And a lot of times those starters, it, it's hard to understand and remember that you've got to come out of that bullpen 110% with your absolute best put-away pitches right away. There's no room for error, and there's no time to kind of throw a get-me-over breaking ball. Everything has to be precise and sharp. And uh, when those great starters go out there and they're able to be that way coming out of the bullpen, they're a lot of fun to watch. And I think about those last outs, whether you're Doolittle or Hudson, those are, th- those outs are so tough to get the drama at end of games, like it's five to four. Uh, talk about just how tough it is to close those final outs out in in World Series or playoff uh, games. Well, I, I mean, listen, this has to close out during the regular season because when the ninth inning rolls around, every offense that's going against you knows it's its last opportunity. So all of a sudden, the at bats they have uh, are, are as, you know they're every bit of focus they have, they're fouling off pitches. Nobody wants to be the last guy out in a game. And uh, when you're in a World Series, it just becomes that much more intense, that much more focused. And uh, I think that for me, you know, look, this is going to be a, a tough World Series for, uh, you know, for Osuna, for Doolittle. Doolittle did a fantastic job with, with hardly any room for air last night. But it's going to be tough for these guys because at the end of the day, the Houston Astros can do a lot of things to beat you. They, they of course, will go for the long ball. Uh, but you've got there's a few little features, a fastball that he throws 88% of the time. Uh, Asuna on the other end, he's a great pitcher. I think he's a great closer. But the Nationals do such a good job with two strikes and especially with two outs. So both teams, their offenses, that can do a lot against great closers. And obviously we already saw Altuve do that against Chapman. Oh, Altuve's so special, of course. We've been talking about how that guy's going to be in the Hall of Fame someday. He's just such a special player. And they have so many good players on the Astros, and that's why it's shocking. If you go to the start of the ALCS through Game 1 last night, they're just hitting a buck thirty-eight with runners in scoring position. You know, after watching them all season long, it's hard to believe they've gone into a little bit of this offensive funk. Well, they have a little bit, and obviously, you know, I think it's it's clear that Bregman is not his normal self right now. Uh, when he snaps out of it, I think I think that will be contagious for the whole lineup. But you know, the Astros look they've been they've been going toe to toe with a lot of American League teams here in the postseason that are also long ball teams, and you kind of get in this mode where it's you know you're just kind of selling out for home runs, and and, and no team did that more than the Yankees, uh, who also struggled, you know, just trying to get singles and and, and do the little things right. But all of a sudden we see, you know, the Nationals come in and get those base hits and be tough with two outs and do those little things. And I think that the Astros maybe will start to remember by watching the Nationals that, oh, yeah, there's other ways to score runs besides the home run. They'll start getting the bat on the ball more, and that off, that offensive surge uh, will be easier. That average should start to go up. But they've got to get out of home run or nothing mode. And I think about the Washington Nationals, and we've seen this in the past once they started the wild card games. These teams that have been playing postseason baseball for the, like the last month of the season, then they win the wild card, then they win the division, then they win the league series. There's just something about a certain wild card team that catches that magic. They just become, why do they become so tough to beat? They are tough to beat. And, and I'll tell you, you know, as far as the Nationals go, um, they're not a team that had a lot of you know, margin for error in terms of this entire season. The Astros, um, you know, as soon as they got up as many games as they did and, and the way they just clobbered people and, 
know, they were winning games eight to one, seven to nothing. And, you know, the Nationals never had that luxury. They, they didn't necessarily have an offense that was going to blow up and put up, you know, 10 runs on everybody they faced. Uh, they had to play, you know, airtight defense. They had to do a great job with that bullpen in the second half. They had to have timely hitting, and, and no team, uh, you know, had more, scored more runs with two outs uh, in, in baseball than the Nationals did. And so they learned to kind of rely and depend on that formula. And uh, so, so coming in in the wild as the wild card team, they've already been doing that for a while. They, they've already been playing with, uh, you know, pretty airtight defense and everything else. And I, that's why I think a lot of times that wild card team is able to kind of continue that recipe and just take it through. Whereas the other teams that are maybe the offensive juggernauts during the season are kind of looking around and saying, well, we're facing good pitching. Who's going to step up? The Nationals don't have time to sit around and wait to see who's going to step up. They've been doing it for the last you know, month or two. They know everyone's going to step up and have good at bats. And so they're just very comfortable playing in these tight games. Hey, we really appreciate the time and enjoy this. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're going to be doing this show throughout the offseason. We're going to be at the winter meetings in San Diego. We'd love to have you again and continued success with uh, joining the dark side, the media now. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, it, 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 the game is a heck of a lot easier on this side. I'll tell you what, man, it's, it's, it's easy to me to, to see where mistakes are made when you're, when you're actually not playing anymore. Uh, but, uh, you know, it is, it's a lot of fun and I, I love being able to cover baseball and to, to stay in touch with it and to, you know, just kind of, uh, just kind of understand the game from a little bit different perspective right now. And, and obviously, uh, you know, cheering for a lot of different guys, uh, uh, you know, Ryan Zimmer, I, my last year in DC in 2012, got to play with Zimmerman and Strauss a little bit. So cheering for those guys, but of course, uh, I got to play with the Astros too. So it's, uh, it's an amazing world series. I'm thrilled to death that we're getting such great pitching. And uh, I'll be uh, I'll be glued to the TV tonight. Yeah, the good thing for you is after a show, you can just turn off the microphone, and there's going to be no media asking about the show. <laughs> exactly. No matter how many mistakes I make during a show, <laughs> it's like you can just turn it all off, and it goes away. It's pretty remarkable. <laughs> yes, I think uh, I think the media probably should be a little more accountable for mistakes here and there. But I'll tell you what, um, it, like I said, I, I am enjoying it on that side, and. And I know how much pressure these players are under, especially right now uh, during the World Series. So hopefully they're able to uh, to get some good night's sleeps. Good stuff. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Well, now joining us here on A's Cast Live, he is the outstanding pitching coach for your Oakland Athletics. Scott Emerson is with us here on A's Cast Live. Emo, how are you? Oh, things are going good. How are you guys doing? Well, we miss you. You know, it's weird. Like, all of a sudden, you see people every single day, and then you vanish for uh, a few months before we see it spring training. So how's the offseason going for you? Well, offseason's going pretty good. Just, uh, you know, doing some, some baseball stuff here and there and uh, getting reacquainted with the wife and dog and uh, my terrible golf game. Yeah, I think it's it's funny. It's like all of a sudden now we have all this time on our hands. It's like, what do I do for the next X amount of months? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, but, you know, the one thing I like to do is uh, I consider myself a baseball rat. So I'm, I'm trying to, to uh, re-educate myself on all the new technologies and seeing if there's anything else out there that's better. Uh, trying to still watch a video of guys pitching. I take a guy here and there every day and just break him down and uh, put it on paper and some thoughts that uh, I might have for next year on this, on the, on our pitchers and maybe even look at some opposing hitters and uh, just take the day and, and nice, easy baseball days. So when I think about the postseason, some people don't want to watch it. 
Some people want to watch every minute of it. Where are you when it comes to watching postseason games, especially now since we're in the World Series? Uh, you, you know, the crazy thing is that, you know, I'm on the East Coast. I live on the East Coast, and uh, you know, these games are on so late. You know, they come on at 8 o'clock Eastern time, and, and they don't end till midnight. But I watch most of the game, but I, 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 won't, I will say I did flip over to the uh, Lakers-Clippers game every now and then. I had to get my basketball fill. So I'm a big basketball fan uh, in the offseason. I, I try to watch as many uh, ACC basketball games and NBA games. Yeah, kind of. It, it, it's, it, it'll be very interesting this year to watch the Clippers take over Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, uh, and they, they played without Paul George last night. So, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's you know, I, I saw where um, I think one of the players for the Clippers was at the Dodgers game, and he got booed. It's definitely a Lakers town. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, one thing that I, I've i noticed this postseason, because it just, to me, it's a tired act when people try and act like starting pitching is doesn't mean as much. Uh, starting pitching is a huge deal. And we're seeing the two teams in the World Series – they are the two teams that pitch the most innings in the postseason. You got a bunch of great starters in this World Series, but I think people now in the game are starting to understand you got to have starting pitching. If you don't have you don't have starting pitching, boy, it's going to be rough sledding. Well, you know, and these two teams have got really good starting pitching. And you notice last night uh, Corbin came in and pitched. Even in last year's World Series, you know, there was a lot of starter in pitching that came out of the bullpen. Generally, you know, the one thing about your starting pitchers is one is they throw more pitches than your relievers and they have the ability to flip lineups. So anytime you can get guys that, um, you know, can flip lineups two and three times, that's always a plus. And I think about what you said, these guys coming out of the bullpen right now, you know, during the regular season, we talk so much about bullpens, but all of a sudden here we get down to the most important outs of the season. As you said, bringing in starters in relief. I love watching it. Well, you know, uh, if, uh, if, you know, there's a fine line, you know, I always talk about, you know, relievers aren't starters because of certain different variables. You know, a reliever might not be a starter because of, you know, the, the condition of his arm, uh, previous health issues with his arm, and therefore you, you make them a reliever and, uh, you know, you get short, quick burst innings out of them. Um, so, you know, there's a fine line. You definitely want to have your best pitchers in game, especially in the World Series. Last night I was texting with one of our pitching coaches and he was like, how many how many pitches are you going to let Serger throw? And I said, 140. I mean, whenever he tells me he's done, you know, I mean, this is one of the best pitchers in the game. This is the World Series. This isn't the first game of the season. And if my best pitchers on my staff tell me they're good to go, then I'm going to pitch them. Yeah, no doubt about it. You got to rip the ball out of his hands. And, you know, he didn't get off to a good start. But And we've actually seen this multiple times. I think about the Yankee game in game five where Verlander didn't win. But the fact that he went seven innings in that game really helped them in game six because they didn't have to bury their bullpen in game five. Verlander swallowed the inning. So even though they lost, that was a big start for Houston. Yeah, I mean, anytime your starters can – I mean, look at Garrett Cole last night. What did he go, seven innings and gave up five? 
and they didn't have to chew up much of their bullpen in a loss. So in tonight's game, they're going to go out and, and they know they got the next day off so they can use as many guys as they need to with the off day tomorrow. And that that's the luxury of having good starters that, you know, they're going to give you seven innings. Uh, you know what you're going to get out of them. And those are the guys that uh, when you're looking for starting pitching are the guys that you're looking for are guys that you know what you're getting out of them every time they take the mound. And hopefully that's seven innings. You know, I know most starters average five and a third, five and two thirds, but the game is changing to, to where, uh, you know, third time through uh, the numbers are starting to, 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 to swing towards the hitter. So that's important too. But if that's the case, then multiple inning pitchers will become important. Yes, and if that rule actually is instituted that you're going to have to face at least three guys, you're going to need – it's like the bridge guy that gets to the bridge guy that gets to the closer will become far more important as about 42% of all innings pitched this year were by bullpens. But I think that's kind of going to get flipped once you have this new rule if it is implemented. How do you feel about that rule that if you bring a guy in, he's got to face at least three guys? Well, you know, me personally, I mean, we're changing the game too much. The game is great the way it's been. Let the strategy of the game play out. Um, you know, everybody's talking about, you know, records. And uh, if records are the case and you're making now pitchers throw to three hitters, you're altering the record books again in a different way. You know, my suggestion one time was like, if you don't like the, the how long the game takes, play seven innings. And then uh, the people I was talking to was, were complaining about, well, then the record books, guys won't get as many at-bats, guys won't get as many innings pitched. But in my opinion, we're not playing for the record books. You know, I'm playing to win a World Series, period. You know, it, it's a team game. Uh, let's get back to it being a team game. If you've got to move runners over, you move runners over. But I understand it from a player's perspective. That that's how they're getting paid nowadays. They're not getting really paid to move a guy over. You know, scoring position nowadays is a runner on first or even you in the batter's box. So, you know, the, the whole the pitcher has to face three hitters, it doesn't make any sense to me. It, it's it's altering the style of the game. Do you see – it, go ahead. I was going to say, it, well, if you can alter the style one way and make a pitcher face three hitters, you can alter the game and, and uh, just play seven. You're going to get it over with in hopefully two and a half or 220. Uh, it might make your might make teams use starting pitchers a little bit more. Um, you know, let the guy go a complete game like these guys used to do uh, 50 years ago. I, you know, these are just rambling thoughts. You know, I, I love the game the way the game is. I, I love the human elements uh, of the game. I don't, you know, replay, I, I, I don't mind replay, but I mean, you know, you, let's get every call right. Let's just don't say, well, you get to look at one call, and if you lose, you lose your challenge. That doesn't make sense to me either. If we're going to replay, replay all the all the calls, you know, and, and get every call right. Scott Emerson, pitching coach for the Oakland Athletics, joining us here on A's Cast Live with Chris Townsend. And I, I remember you talking about last year where – you wanted the mindset of your staff to, hey, when we call on you, be ready to go. And that really is, has stayed with me. And it makes me think that if you don't have a Cole or a Verlander or a Scherzer, that maybe someday in baseball 
We'll have like positionless staffs. You won't be called a starter. You won't be called a reliever. You won't be called a closer. You're just going to be called a guy. When you when we call on you, we want you to go out there and give us as much as you can. Could you see a staff being built like that? Well, Tony, it's funny that you say that, but we, we do have that. It, it's called travel ball in high school and college and junior college. When, when these teams want to win big games and your number one pitcher uh, is available to pitch, he pitches in that big game. You know, um, you know, I, I know the, uh, the Rays get credit for having the opener start and all this stuff, but these are ideas that the Oakland Athletics Organization had for years. We just didn't implement some of this stuff uh, uh, until the Rays actually did it, and then we implemented it some in 18. But we had these ideas going around in 16, and we got some other ideas going around. But, you know, I can see, you know, one game is important. You know, if you, if you, you know, don't get out of the gate, and, you know, luckily for the uh, Nationals this year, they were 19-31, I believe that was the call. And they they had a great year after that. They picked it up. But sometimes that's a knockout punch. You know, you look at some of these teams, they're 19-31, and 31, and after 50 games, and, and they're out of it. So we got to find ways, uh, teams, in my opinion, to stay in the, in the race as long as possible. And if that means using pitchers in a different type of way, in a different type of role, I'm all for it. You know, I like to be creative. I know our organization, in my opinion, is one of the greatest created orga- creative organizations in baseball. You just you also have to find, you know, sometimes it's it hasn't been done yet, so you want to kind of see where it's going and trial and error. But sometimes you don't have time for trial and error. But I I, I could definitely see you know more pitchers being able to throw more innings. Uh, rather than a one or two inning specialist, why can't we have more starter type pitchers on your roster and being a little bit more flexible in who's pitching? You know, the last two years, you and Bob Melvin have just done an unbelievable job piecing this thing together. And then, of course, the front office making some trades to help you out down the stretch. But next year, my God, going into spring training. You look at all the different quality arms you're going to have, and they're going to be healthy. And there's going to be an absolute dogfight to be one of the five guys in the rotation. When you're sitting at home thinking about it, you got to be salivating right now, thinking about that not only the rotation that you'll have in the big leagues, but then the rotation Fran Reardon will have down in Las Vegas. That's going to be super competitive. You know, uh, our, our organization's been great about depth, you know, and. And uh, I know we talked kind of about the next guy up, you know, uh, Frankie Montas had his issues this year. And then we had guys that just stepped up after that. We really started pitching really good. Uh, I, you know, right around that time we needed guys to step up. You know, I think Frankie uh, showed a lot of fight early. I thought Chris Bassett, when he came up that he showed a lot of fight for us. Uh, and he did a tremendous job by the way of uh, having that little split role every now and then where he could start in relief. But you're right, you know, Lazardo coming up, pitching out of that bullpen, and, and A.J. Puck, and then uh, Sean Manaya coming uh, coming in healthy. Fires does his normal stuff. Uh, you know, it, it's it's awesome to look for the future. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the game's not played on paper. we got to go out there and, uh, you know, be, a, be our warrior mentality and, and pitch one game at a time attitude. But I'm looking forward to it for sure. 
You know, I got a feeling after winning 97 games two straight years, once this World Series ends, and I know everybody's going to be really excited about the A's chances, I, I, do you get the sense this is going to be a very quick offseason and we're going to be at spring training before you know it? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the guys, you know, uh, you know, when you make the playoffs, and and you know, unfortunately for us, we 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 took it uh, took it on the chin two two years in a row. But the guys get hungry, and they get hungry. And once you start tasting it, and it starts tasting good, you want more of it. So I, I think the guys are going to come in hungry, hungrier than they've ever been. And you know, I I. I think that you know the wild card game was a really good goal for us uh, I think you know last year that was our goal you know let's get to the playoffs let's get to the playoffs let's get to the playoffs but I think now we we got to start prioritizing let's win the division you know we, we proved uh, later in the year that we were good enough to, to beat the Astros some which they're a great team man they're they're they're, they're unbelievable they, they do it all in my opinion but I think we can do it all too. We just, you know, with our young pitching that you're talking about, it's time for us to really set the bar at winning the division rather than making the playoffs. Yeah, winning the World Series. Why not? Well, yeah, why not? I mean, well, I'm just saying that's our sure, that's our first goal. We get to the division, win the division, um, and and then we'll then we'll move on from there. But the division right now, I think we got the pieces in place, the players in place, the attitude in place. Uh, skipper Bob Melvin, in, you know, the best skipper in baseball, in my opinion, in place. And he sets the, the tone in spring training, which is a great tone. And we'll just, we'll just go after it. And like you said, yeah, let's win the World Series. Uh, but let's, let's get past the Astros on that division title so we, so we can host some more home games at Oakland. So in the offseason, how much will you stay in contact with, with your guys like how much do you want to talk to them to see how they're doing what they're doing when they start throwing you know we just talked to Liam Hendricks recently and he he's going to start throwing again soon so how much contact do you have with these guys in the off season? well I got a good amount of contact you know uh, uh once every once a week once every two weeks I'm texting guys I'm keeping them up to date of when uh when the throwing program, you know, we set up a throwing program for the guys. We, it's a guideline, you know, a lot of guys, especially in the major leagues, and they've been around a long time and they've been with other organizations. They know what they got to do to be ready for uh, spring training, but it's, it's my job. And, and Nick Paparesta, our head athletic trainer and Josh Cuffey, our head strength and conditioning coach, you know, we're calling guys about the arm care, about strength and conditioning and about the throwing program. And we're blending in all three programs and um, if the guys do something a little bit different or they want something different, then, then we go on for there, uh, from there. You know, it's, it's like, in my opinion, I, I, I have, you know, if we got 20 pitchers, I got 20 different corporations I'm working for. Yeah. I handle 20, 20 pitchers differently. So some guys uh, like to really uh, extend themselves with long toss. Some guys like to be a little bit shorter, but uh so I'm just trying to, to listen to them and then have them listen back and, and we formulate the good game plan in the offseason. So I, I'm I'm in good contact with, with most of the guys. 
Hey, it's great hearing from you. We miss you. Uh, like I said, it's going to be a quick off season, but uh, we're going to be calling you during this off season and to get some details about your pitchers, and we'll see what happens down at the winter meetings. And the number one thing, just hit them straight, man. You got to hit fairways if you're going to make birdies and make pars. You got to hit fairways. Well, yeah, you know, I had a great conversation with my brother. Who my brother runs seven golf courses in North Scottsdale, and and we talk about scoring and you're right. You know, the reason why I'm not a good golfer is because my approach shots, I got 30 foot putts. You know, I, I can't, you're not going to be a good golfer when you two and three putt in every hole. You know what I'm saying? So I got to get that approach shot a little bit closer to the stick and make some putts. Well, as long as I got a golf cart and I got beer, I'm going to be fine. Yeah. I'm trying to quit on the beer a little bit. I got to get this, uh, I got to improve this body a little bit. I know rounds a, a, a shape, but I, I got to improve this before I turn 50 in three years. <laughs> Emo, you're the best. We'll be in contact. All right. Sounds good. Brian Kenny is a host of MLB Now. He's also one of the great hosts on uh, the MLB Network. All his great years of doing boxing. Brian, it's always an honor to have you on the program. Welcome to A's Cast Live with Chris Townsend. Excellent, Chris. Good to be with you. I was just talking about, and I know we got a long way to go, but if this ain't, this thing ends quick, it's going to kind of remind me of the A's and Reds in 1990 because the A's were such big favorites. How shocked are you right now that the Astros are down 0-2? Well, yeah, I, I don't think you can minimize it. I mean, you know it's a quality team. You know it's possible uh, as soon as they beat uh, – you know, beat the Brewers in the wild card and survive that game. You knew they had the, you know, the rotation and the top of the lineup you know, to give the Dodgers problems. Yet I would have favored and I did favor the Dodgers. And even knowing all that, that this is, a, a, again, it's a dynamic offense with, uh, again, frontline starting pitching that is all coming together. I still favored the Astros. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a surprise. Look, it, you know, one game just changes everything so dramatically. Game one, I got the sense the Astros were, were going to win the whole game. I mean, you had that sense, even when they were trailing, they were going to come from behind. But they didn't. And then it was 2-2 in the seventh yesterday, and then it's blowout city. So it's easy to, you know, to say, hey, no, the Nationals are a quality club. They've won 93 games, even with that bad start. And yet, no, we, this is quite a surprise to see them, after being so snake bit for so long, now be in the driver's seat. Oh, yeah, and you know how much we got to deal with the Astros, and I'm with you. I thought after the Astros got on the board early in game one, you're like, oh, this thing's going to be over. But, you know, we want to quantify everything in this game. And, and, of course, with the A's, we do that. But there's something about magic. There's something about chemistry. There's something about these guys having fun. I mean, when you're looking at Eaton and Kendrick driving the car and, and on the bench and these guys, I mean, they look like they look like they're having a blast, and it looks miserable over in the Astros' dugout. Yeah, but, you know, it, it felt that way last week. Like the Yankees looked all uptight and the Astros were loose, even though they got down one zip. And you remember, it could have easily been two zip Yankees. They lost an extra innings. So they could have been going to Yankee Stadium down to zip, but they didn't. So things change. And uh, I'll say this about like, you know, the clubhouse chemistry thing, which is, you know, always like, you know, at the forefront of every media conversation in baseball history. I'll say this, the Nationals club was a team that was notoriously uptight 
through the years. You know, they lost four times in the division series. They did look miserable. Even I have to admit that. And that is not the way this club is now. So uh, even I have to grant you that they do look looser. They do look like they respond to adversity much better. Um, it's not life or death, and you're always better when you fight. When you don't, even if your life is on the line, when you think it's not. Hey, we had Chip Hale, our good friend Chip, who obviously was with the A's, and we had him on recently, and he talked about how they were feeling a little like they were feeling a little tight in that clinching game in the NLCS. So they threw up. He said they threw up hard just to hit so they could play the Baby Shark song to get everybody from be, <laughs> make everybody loose in the stadium. I mean, it's amazing how little things can affect. And uh, we're, we're rooting for a lot of the uh, XAs there. And I'm thinking about you know because we talk so much about bullpens and bullpenning and 42% of all innings this year pitched by bullpens. But here the Nationals are their starters, and I'm looking at your guys' notes from the NLB Network. 8-1 and one with a 2.23 ERA in 12 games. The National starters, Brian, they've been fabulous. Well, it's never been a shock, again, through the history of baseball, that the way to win is through your an outstanding starting rotation. My point has always been it's very expensive. It's hard to, it's hard to put that all together. And in this day and age, you know, there's no salary cap, but there is a luxury tax threshold. So you've got to be careful about what you're spending. So, yeah, it's pricey, but they chose to reinvest, uh, you know, out, reallocate their resources from Bryce Harper uh, to a very young outfield that was emerging and then putting their big money into Patrick Corbin. And it really worked beautifully in the regular season. So there's a lot of ways of doing it. And, yeah, this is really bucking the trend that we've not only seen, you know, one side, both sides. I mean, these are uh, – I did an essay for MLB Now the other day, really matching up like the all-time great rotations in World Series history. And I think we'll look back someday and look at this like we look at, you know, uh, maybe maybe not quite the 69, you know, Mets and Orioles, but maybe like the, uh, the Orioles and the Dodgers. Uh, in the in the mid '60s, or the Twins and uh, and the Dodgers in the mid '60s, this is an all-time great starting pitcher clash. Well, I think about MLB now, as you say, the show for the thinking fan, and you guys are going to be in D.C. and you're going to be airing live coverage before and after every World Series game. And I love when you do MLB now at this time of the year when you're on the field and you got all those guests. But you got to be honored that you guys put on a baseball show on television like we have never seen before, just for you personally, professionally, and the guys around you. How much do you just love doing that show every day? Oh, I really do. And that's nice of you to say, because I hope it is appreciated out there because you know I've been in this business ooh, 35 years now, I guess. And um, we, we do a show that, you know, we try to cultivate an intelligent audience and uh, not just, you know, blather on out there and try to come up with interesting topics and try to dig deeper beneath the surface. And, uh, you know, baseball allows you to do that because it is so, uh, it is so, I wouldn't say reliant on, but it, it, it can be so driven by data and logic and facts, and yet you do then have to relate it to the physical real world. And I think that's what's exciting in baseball now, that it's the players that are driving this analytic revolution now. It's very baseball-y, and they're using the information as weapons out there. And yet I think it's always fascinating to think about, like, well, this guy looks valuable. How valuable is he? What is the best way to put together a team? Um, what is, you know, like with the Nationals, is a new market inefficiency, um, high, you know, assigning 35-year-old, 34-year-old players to 
two-year contracts, putting them to good money and not like discarding them. That's what kind of uh, Mike Rizzo of the Nationals has done. So, yeah, there's a lot of fascinating ways of doing it, and we do get to explore that in depth on the show for an hour every day. And to your point, yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be surrounded by such good people, so many good people to have our, our research staff with us and really dig into what we think is fascinating about baseball. Oh, yeah, we steal from your show all the time. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I'm flattered. Yeah, Excellent. no no, no doubt, no doubt. It's it's my favorite sh- It's sad to say, but it is my favorite show. I'm a baseball dork, so it is my favorite show. So, you know, when I start thinking about what the Astros have to do to get back into this, like if you look into this and whatever you've looked, whatever metric, whatever, what has to happen with the – I mean, I know they're, they're horrible with runners in scoring position ever since game one of, of the ALCS hitting one, 127. What has to happen to get them back into this thing? No, I mean, you just have to play. These things are flukish. It's funny. As we – you know, at the network, we do nothing but baseball all day long. And all through the season, if you pay attention to it, you'll see – you know, teams change in their energy, in how well they're playing, in how dominant they look or how awful they look in a half week, like series to series. If you really chart it and if like, you know, I'm sure like, you know, A's fans can look at it and say there are, there are uh, half weeks that go by, series that go by where it's like, wow, the A's can beat anybody. Wow, they just crushed the Astros. Wow, they match up with the Yankees. You don't want to play the A's. And then the following week, they just look lousy. So in any half week, a team can look completely different. So Zach Greinke is pitching tomorrow. You know, actually, I thought he had a very good start against the Yankees. He had to struggle. It was kind of tough, raw weather. I was out at that game at Yankee Stadium, and he was constantly in trouble, and yet he only allowed one run. You have to allow Greinke to pitch his game, and then the rest of the offense just has to be, you know, as disciplined at the plate as they were. I mean, that's the one thing that can change is if you go out thinking you're down 2-0 and your back is against the wall, well, you're in trouble. If you can go out and just play loose and say we need to take two out of three against the Nationals, well, the Astros should be able to take two out of three against anybody. I was asked this question, and because Juan Soto's going to turn just 21 on Friday, I was asked if you could draft anybody number one pick in baseball right now, long term, and you got Acuna Jr., you got all these, all this great young talent in our game, who would be the guy you'd take number one? Wow, it depends on where you would put the cutoff for age. I know I've thought about that. Like, if you know, in a normal sense, I think I would go Trout, Judge, Bregman. Now, if you're saying I've got to go younger, then I'd have to really rethink it and see who, see what my options are. It would be close, uh, but I know I know what you're saying. It's the plate discipline of Soto that separates him. Uh, Acuna is a better fielder, more explosive player. But, yeah, 21 years old with a 400 on base, 540 slugging or whatever he has lifetime, to get 10 years of that, it's really it would be tough to top that. And then everybody we know at the Astros saying, we've never seen a left-handed hitter ever hit it up on the train track. I mean, when he did that, it was like, wow, this, this guy has great power. Before we let you go, just got to ask you one A's question. Because we had uh, the COO of the A's on yesterday, and, and we were both laughing going, we never want to see another wild card game. What do you think has to happen for the A's to, to have that mindset, to be able to win that wild card game and, and have that kind of mental toughness that we're seeing with the Nationals? Nothing. There's, not, there's no magic anything. And this is, a, I think, a lesson for your people out there. 
and nationals like they lost almost tragically four straight times right i mean in the division series they could not win and they lost like they lost that game in 18 innings one time uh in 2014 and then like uh they had that bullpen disaster in 2016 2017 remember they had that disastrous inning when max scherzer came on in relief and that was against the cubs and it like so they had these when you would line them up the nationals have had these disastrous losses one after another and they've won more games than really anybody over the last like seven eight years except maybe the dodgers and yet they couldn't even win a series so there's and now they can't lose so there's nothing magical to it um you know maybe you do uh go after a few more veteran players to top off your roster but the year that the a's lost to the royals you know it's it is just a crapshoot that that a's team was tremendous that year they just lost you know they lost that game so I don't think there's anything you try to put together like people were asking me hey what should the Yankees do now that they've lost get better is yeah just try to get better you you roll the dice when you get into the postseason you try to put out you know finish off your roster put on the finishing touches but the A's do that every year uh with what they spend anyway so there's nothing magical you try to build the best team possible our first World Series game in Washington D.C. In 86 years, it's unbelievable. Brian, enjoy the rest of the series. We always appreciate your time. You know how much we love your shows, whether it's MLB Now or when you're hosting uh, on MLB Network. Thank you for the time, and and enjoy the rest of uh, this World Series. All right, my pleasure. Great talking to you again. Take care. Sarah, thank you for coming on the program. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to chat. All right, so the the Astros are down 0-2. I just asked Brian Kinney this. How shocked are you? I I am very surprised at the way that they have looked in this series. I mean, I really felt coming in that the Nationals had so much of that. I think we talked about this when I saw you guys at the Coliseum, but all of the momentum stuff that, you know, me as a numbers person I know doesn't actually exist, but then I watch a game and I'm like, wait, it, it definitely does exist. The Nationals had all of that in their favor. So I could have seen them maybe taking a game, but I was absolutely shocked. I mean, the way the Astros have played is just not the Astros that we've kind of come to expect, honestly, over the last three years. And it's really something, but it's so exciting for the Nationals. And I'm just so excited for DC and all of that. I I think it's such a great, you know, this is like what we love in sports so much, right? Like it would have been great if the Astros had steamrolled them in the first two games and were about to go finish a sweep in DC. That would be great too. But there's something about a team that hasn't been there with Ryan Zimmerman and Juan Soto. You have the opposite ends of the spectrum and age. You have all of these other storylines and that team is doing this. It's so cool. I mean, you just look at the numbers and the Nationals have been so dominant. I, I mean, they, they've won eight straight games. They're hitting 355 during that time with runners in scoring position. Their staff has a 1.97 ERA during that winning streak. I mean, they win game three. It's going to be an all-time record. I mean, we knew the Nationals would be tough. We had no idea they'd be this dominant. Yeah. It's amazing. And another one you can add to that, they have 17 runs they scored on the road, which is the third most by any team in the first two games of a World Series on the road. And the other two are the 1960 Yankees and the 1936 Yankees were ahead of them. I mean, that's not just, oh, you've been good in these games. This is like, hey, all time, only two teams were ever better, which is pretty impressive. But 
I think it's been so exciting to see what they've done with their bullpen. I mean, we saw Patrick Corbin pitch in relief. We've we've seen these things happen all postseason. And, you know, I was there watching the NL wildcard game, uh, you know, when we were actually out in Oakland and, you know, saw them bring in Strasburg after Scherzer struggled a little bit. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Maybe you can win a wildcard game that way, but you can't, you can't win going forward this way. And then they managed to win a five-game series that way. And I'm like, okay, but you can't really do it in a seven-game series. And then they played so well that the seven-game series was a four-game series. So they were able to do these kinds of things and it didn't matter. And they seemed to be on track to do the same. I, I, I don't think anyone would have ever thought heading into this postseason that you could that that team that had such a bad bullpen and everyone knows it would be able to manipulate using their starters to the point where they could be on the precipice of potentially winning a world series in terms of the actual number of innings you have to throw and the number of, you know, just appearances that you require out of those guys. But I mean, major props to Davey Martinez because, you know, for all of the criticism that he got early in the year and there was plenty and the team was 19 and 31. So it wasn't unjustified necessarily, but I mean, it's gone pretty well. Yeah, and then I just think of these next two games. Like, Zach Greinke has not been great in the postseason his career. This year he's 0-2 with a 6.43 ERA uh, going up against Annabelle Sanchez, who has the experience from pitching in the World Series with the Tigers. And then game four, it's going to have to be a bullpen game for the Astros versus Corbin. I don't want to jinx it, but, my God, I'm not going to be shocked if this is a sweep. Right? I, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, Granke, as you said, had not been great in his postseason career and he's, he's really struggled, you know, for the Astros this postseason. I mean, his last start, he gave up one run, but he only went four and a third, you know, and the other games have not been what you want to see the three home runs against the Rays and two homers against the Yankees. I mean, you know, I've been disappointed to see that because he was one of those guys on the list of, you know, these players who've been in the league for 10 plus years who I was so excited to see get to play in the World Series and Zimmerman's on that list and, you know, Kurt Kurt Suzuki and all of these other guys. And, you know, it's disappointing to see him struggle on that stage only because, you know, I wish the best for him and I wish that he were at least personally able to have a better experience there. And, you know, we'll see what he brings in game three. But it's, you know, while heading into the World Series, it feels completely unrealistic. It felt completely unrealistic to say, you know, hey, the Nationals could potentially pull off a sweep or go up 2-0 on the road. Now it feels completely realistic to, to, you know, outline what you said, which is, I mean, just absolutely mind-blowing. We have uh, breaking news. Obviously, there's been a story that's been hovering over this World Series with the Houston Astros, and the Houston Astros have announced that assistant general manager Brandon Taubman has been terminated. He is no longer with the organization. They did an investigation, and they said their investigation led them to this. They actually finally apologized. They say, we were wrong. We sincerely apologize to Stephanie Epstein, Sports Illustrated, and to all individuals who witnessed this incident or were offered uh, or who were offended by the appropriate inappropriate conduct. The Astros in no way intend to minimize the issue related to domestic violence. So we knew Major League Baseball had sent people from New York to investigate. The commissioner said yesterday that it will be the Astros' decision, and the Astros have now terminated their assistant general manager who made those awful comments. You've been following the story, and, and as a woman in this in this game, how would you feel about the story, and how do you feel now that uh, Brown and Tobman has been terminated? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously with my job, I, I am a reporter um, and I also do a lot of research. So, you know, I don't spend as much time in the clubhouse as obviously these writers who were there, you know, on the eve of the ALCS clinch and all of that. But uh, I was, you know, just frankly disappointed to see how women were being treated in this, in uh, throughout how this story went, the you know, dismissal of what Stephanie had reported, which turned out to be true and all of that. So, um, you know, unfortunately, this doesn't really undo the damage that happened. And that's the upsetting part about, you know, women's place still in sports and in the locker room overall. But uh, it does seem like that is the right move. And I'm glad to see the statement that they did apologize to her, which I know the Baseball Writers Association of America had called for and other um, organizations as well. And I, I think about A.J. Hinch. If there was one, there's, there's really only one person in the Houston Astros organization who handled this correctly from the get-go. And it was A.J. Hinch who was asked about it. And I thought what he said when he basically said whether you're a player, whether you're a coach, whether you're a manager, whether you're media, nobody should ever come into the Astros clubhouse and feel uncomfortable or scared. And when he said that, I was like, you know, they should take that statement, print it, and put it in all every single clubhouse in Major League Baseball. Nobody who enters those doors should ever feel uncomfortable or scared doing their job. Yeah, I really appreciated those comments from him. You know, I've been lucky enough that I have not ever been in a situation where I felt uncomfortable thus far in my job, you know, in this role and being in clubhouses a lot, especially in this past uh, this past season. But I was still really heartened to hear that. And I, I did wish I could hear that from more people. I mean, it's not a requirement or anything, but I think to your point, you know, it's a nice affirmation, you know, and obviously it was kind of necessary in that situation with the Astros and with what had happened, but I would love to hear those kinds of things from, from more individuals just in the sport. I think that sometimes a lot of things are, you know, assumed where, you know, maybe they could be outlined and certain people would feel a little more comfortable or a lot more comfortable. And let's get back to the 115th World Series. And when you look at Cole and you look at Verlander, from their very first starts in this postseason to what we've start, you know, we started to see, they've kind of they they haven't ramped up. They've kind of ramped down. I mean, the strikeouts are down, the 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 runs are up. So it's kind of like if you kind of really looked into the numbers, should we be that shocked about their two performances in Game One and Game Two? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that's a good way to put it. You know, we see we see this happen every year where guys are just really tired by this point, and often it does end up deciding a World Series. And, you know, with Garrett Cole, it was so surprising because he had been so outstanding for, what, basically three months. He hadn't, you know, pitched a home loss, a, a team loss since May 22nd. He hadn't, you know, pitched a team loss anywhere uh, since July so we had basically just come to expect him as automatic, but we have to remember that he isn't. And, you know, he threw 212 and a third innings in the regular season, which was already his most in any regular season at the major league level. And then you put in the postseason, and he did not go deep into the postseason with the Pirates. So he doesn't have the experience of pitching like this. And he's been pitching, he had been pitching pretty deep in those games. And, you know, that's almost the expectation out of him. So you know, while he's so good, it's hard to go out there and go seven plus innings in four postseason starts when you threw that many innings in the regular season. And, you know, someone who pitched 30 years ago would tell us that that's not the case. But, 
the way the guys pitch now and the fact that he hits a hundred in his final inning half the time, I mean, you know, it's one of those things where hindsight is twenty twenty, and maybe we should have seen that coming, but there also isn't anything the Astros could have done differently. I mean, you're not going to rest him at any point. He's your absolute best pitcher. He's, he's vying for a Cy Young award against the other guy, of course. You know, there's no point where you could say, oh, we're just going to have you go five this day, Garrett. I mean, that's just not how these guys work. You know, you think about the Madison Bumgarners, the Max Scherzers, these kinds of guys, they're not going to say yes to something like that. And, you know, it helped the team. I mean, ultimately, they almost didn't have home field advantage throughout the postseason. So they needed every win, you know, so you can't even say that September could have been treated differently. And, you know, I think with Verlander, it's it's pretty similar. He's had seasons where he pitched, you know, 250 innings, but, you know, not in a very long time. And he's at two, he was at 223 in the regular season. And he's also had a couple of deep postseason starts. So, you know, this is what happens. Whereas, you know, I guess, you know, the Nationals are just in a different spot. Scherzer was hurt, which certainly wasn't a positive for the team or himself or anything, but it does mean he threw a lot fewer innings this year. And those kinds of things, you know, maybe that ends up being one of these things that helped them that isn't something you would ever hope for, but maybe it ends up being one of those sort of X factors that he was a little less overworked by, you know, mid-October, late October. Okay, so we've had three hires. Let's go them, Let's go through them quickly. How do you feel about David Ross coming out of the booth and at back in baseball as the manager of the Cubs? So I know David Ross, um, obviously, from working at ESPN, and he is, you know, such a great guy. I'm really happy for him. I think we, I think we might have talked about this last time I talked with you, but, uh, you know, I – I think he's going to do a great job. I, I know what some of the concerns are about, you know, maybe managing certainly his friends and his former teammates and, you know, being so young and having been in that clubhouse just three years ago, but he's a great motivator. I think he's an outstanding teammate. I mean, you know, everyone who I've worked with, honestly, all of those anchors and talent at ESPN were great. But one thing that you would definitely say about David Ross is that he's a good teammate. And I think that that will translate really well. Um, and you know, catchers are great managers. I mean, you can't, you can't paint with that broad a brush, but we've certainly seen some hall of fame managers, including one by the Bay, right. And Bruce Bogey who were catchers. And I think that I've always thought that part of the reason why that is, is because it's kind of like the quarterback position in baseball where like you're involved in every play and you're so laser focused that that allows you to then look at it differently when you're older. So I, I love the hire. Yeah, and like our guy, Bob Melvin, one of the best in the business, exactly. also a catcher. Let's go to the Philadelphia Phillies. Another catcher, Joe Girardi, back in business as a manager. Of course, he managed the Fish. He managed the Yankees. Now he's the manager of the Phillies. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we heard early on, right, that the Phillies were really looking for experience in a manager, and they had, you know, pretty much the polar opposite of that in Gabe Kapler over the last two years. So, it seems like they check the box that they want. Everything that I have, you know, everything that I've ever witnessed about the way Joe Girardi manages and everything that everyone has been saying indicates that, you know, I, I do think he's a really good manager. And I think that, you know, his ending in New York was sort of more about other things than it was necessarily directly about him as a manager. Um, so, you know, it's not like he managed really poorly for three years and that's why they get rid of him. You know, he took his team to the game seven of the ALCS in his final year there. So I think he will be probably more of what they want. And, you know, I think that, you know, Bryce Harper had so many managers in DC. Obviously that was kind of one of the problems with the nationals over that time span, but everyone talks about how well he got along with Dusty Baker. And, 
very different individuals, but in terms of the experience, I, I can see that uh, Harper might have, you know, added respect for someone like Joe Girardi. And then this one I really don't know much about. The San Diego Padres, uh, Jace Tangler from the Texas Rangers. I know he's been an assistant GM. I know he's been an interim bench coach. He's never managed higher than A-ball. Like right now he's managing in the Dominican. Uh, He's going to be the Padres' new manager. Do you know much about him? I don't know a whole lot, but I saw that the Padres have hired six. Their last six straight managers have had no prior MLB managerial experience, which is just interesting to me because I, I think what the Phillies did is probably right. You hired a manager with no experience. It didn't work, so you pivoted to someone with more experience. So I do think it's interesting that the Padres have not chosen to go that route. I mean, the finalists were reported to be um, Tingler and Ron Washington, and based on you know experience alone, those are two very opposite ends of the spectrum. But you know, they have a lot of young players coming up and him managing down in the Dominican Republic. He's bilingual. He speaks Spanish. I think that that's a huge, huge, you know, important thing in terms of intangibles or maybe even tangibles um, at this point being a manager. So I, it does sound like he's pretty well equipped to do so, but it, it's definitely interesting um, by the Padres. If you just kind of look at who those managers have been since since Bosch. It's very uh, like you said, and we see we see it so much in football, where 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 you have a head coach that's one way, and then when you fire him, you go to the other end of the spectrum. And uh, yeah, with, with Preller's relationship, AJ Preller, who runs uh, Padres baseball operations, his relationship with Texas guys because he came from the Texas Rangers. We thought Wash, and we were hoping for Wash to get the job. We've had him on a couple times, as you know, a, a longtime A's coach. We love him, but. Uh, We'll see how this works out. It, it, I, I bet he's not working for uh, Big Doe. I would say he's one of these guys yeah. not making the big money. Thank you so much for the time. Of course, I know you're on today. You're going to be on tomorrow on Buster Only's podcast. Are you going to be in D.C.? Uh, I won't be, but I will be. I will be watching and researching and very excited to see what happens uh, on these games. And we will be following you on Twitter, just like everybody should be following you on Twitter, at S Langs on Sports. You're the best, and you know we'll be calling soon. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Travis, welcome back to A's Cast Live with Chris Townsend. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Well, we've been talking about well, we've been talking about your book a lot. Your book is fabulous, the number one book in baseball. We've been pr- promoting it, and we're also promoting your article. Uh, the title: Starting pitchers are getting more work this postseason. They deserve it. It's been a very refreshing theme to watch star pitchers pitching longer in games versus what we've seen with bullpenning. And I'm glad you wrote an article about it. Yeah, it, it has been refreshing to see. And, you know, I think throughout the history of baseball, the, what you'd see in the kind of the marquee going into a game is the starting pitcher versus that's a starting pitcher. And that matchup was kind of a fun game within the game, uh, especially in the postseason. So we've, I think we've got a, we got away from that uh, in recent postseasons where I think last year there were only, well, last two in 17 and 18, there were only a 12 combined starts of 100 pitches or more in the postseason. I think we already have 18 this this postseason period, and we've seen a lot of the best pitchers uh, in the game on the stage. And you know, the Astros rotation versus Nationals rotation—we've never had this many five uh, 
war pitchers are better in playoff uh, in, a, in a series in the World Series. Uh, so it has been refreshing to see. It's been it's been good for the game, I think. Oh, I, I totally agree. And why do you think we're seeing that when there's been such a trend about bullpens? Yeah, I, I mean, I think part of it is just uh, when you have a Garrett Cole at the top of his game and you have a Max Scherzer, you let those guys do their thing and you're not uh, – they're so good, you're not worried about them. Uh, they're usually better their third time through a lineup or even fourth time than your, your bullpen, bullpen options. So I think that's part of it. But I also think, uh, you know, we covered this in the, the book is all about player development and advances there. And I think you know, as pitchers, if pitchers are going to become better because of new training, because of adding pitches, developing more efficient mechanics, more velocity, if all pitchers are going to become better, the, the best pitchers are, by definition, starting pitchers because they have not been banished to the bullpen at some point in their career. So if starting pitchers become better, they should gain more work share back because they have the better command, they have better pitches generally, uh, and they're adding velocity. So I think one of the side effects of player development, uh, of this player development revolution, could be that the best pitchers get better because they're starting pitchers and they gain back some of that work share, that workload they've lost to bullpens. Yeah, I, I think about this year's bullpens, and bullpen innings were up again. They totaled about 40 per, 42% of basically all innings pitched. But then the bullpen numbers for so many teams, they weren't very good. It's like, yeah, we're seeing more innings, but it's almost like they're being exposed. So are, are, are we at like a tipping point where things might have to change? We might, you know, might, we're, we're going to need starters maybe going a lot more innings. <laughs> Yeah, I think there is, uh, especially with the 25-man roster, there's a limit to how much specialization you can have. And perhaps a game has reached a point where there just isn't enough quality relief arms to fit the strategy some teams want to do with relief usage. And for the first time, I think in 20-some years, uh, late in the season, starter ERA was better than bullpen or reliever ERA uh, on a per-inning basis. So, you know, that that said, I mean, that could be a one-year outlier, but I do think it speaks to pushing the limits of bullpenning and relief usage uh, and starters getting back some of that work share. And I mean, even talking to Derek Falvey for that article, the, the twins GM, you know, he says that he believes one of the next things and uh, the player development uh, revolution for lack of a better word is trying to get more work out of your starters. And you almost have to because of the stress that's on a 25, 25 man roster these days. And I don't think we can have a game that has more than, 60% of innings or something soaked up by relievers. And I'm not even sure that that wouldn't even be a very enjoyable game to watch. I don't think, I think there's still uh, something very pleasing about seeing the two great starting pitchers work deep into a game, especially in October. So I hope the game gets back to that a little bit. Uh, I mean, I think we all understand uh, you know, the power of matchups and late inning decisions, that sort of thing. And there is benefits of bullpenning, but yeah, perhaps it went too far. Yeah, I'm with you. I hope to God we get back to watching starters go deeper in games and less bullpens. You know, as Jim Leland was on this program, he said the best bullpen is a starter that goes seven or eight innings. So uh, I would definitely like to see that because, you know, it starts to scare me. And I think a lot of front office people will back this is that, you, you just don't know year to year how your bullpen's going to be. Look at the A's. The A's bullpen last year was absolutely phenomenal. The A's bullpen at this year at times was a dumpster fire with 30 blown saves. <laughs> I mean, you, you just rip from year to year, you don't know. 
Yeah, and, and part of the reason the Nationals have to rely on the rotation is their bullpen had second worst ERA in baseball outside of Baltimore was the 30th ranked. So they also have to rely on their great starters. But one of the interesting things I found in that article is if you just look at starts of 100-plus pitches in the regular season, uh, guys actually – the worst split – I looked at uh, five groups, and one of those was pitches 1 to 25 within the start, 26 to 50, and so on. And the worst performing split within that group was the first 25 pitches of, of a game. And that was sort of surprising because we've heard so much about how pitchers uh, typically get worse each time through the order and deeper into games. But if you just look at the good starts uh, in baseball since 1988 when pitch uh, counts were, were tracked and we can look at splits, if you just look at the 100-plus pitch outings, starters actually got stronger within starts this year and in recent years. And uh, I don't think people – I didn't know that. I don't think many teams are, are thinking that way about starters, but I think there might be something to that old adage of, uh, you know, good pitchers can get stronger within the game. And we have seen that uh, throughout this season and at times in October. So I do think, you know, the best to get seven quality innings out of the starters ideal. And uh, maybe pitchers deserve a little more leash slack and they deserve to, uh, they, we we should really rethink, I think, pitch counts and times for the order and look at pitchers at a more individualized basis and to determine how deep they should go into games rather than just automatically pulling them in a set pitch count at a set time to the order. All righty, the World Series, the Nationals are up two zip. What do you think about the Houston Astros and what chances do you give them? Because right now the odds are against them. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I have... Uh, our 538 model of the Astros. I thought the Astros were the best team in baseball this year, but once you're in a 0-2 hole, you're uh, you're in big trouble. And the Nationals are the favorite now to, to win the series. Uh, now that being said, if any team can overcome that kind of deficit, it, it is the Astros who have the best lineup uh, since the 1927 Yankees by uh, looking at weighted runs created plus. And Garrett Cole, assuming his last outing was kind of a bump in the road, has been as good as any pitcher uh, in recent memory. So I mean, they still have the you know the horses to get it done but hey an 0-2 hole in a best of seven series that's that's tough and now going on the road so uh, I think you have to like the Nationals at this point but if you're going to play this scenario out 100 times you, you know the Astros are still going to probably win 40 of those so they still have a shot uh, but yeah the, the Nationals are in a very good position yeah, we've been talking about you guys all year long, 538, and looking at the predictions, you know, where the A's were, wild card division, uh, getting into the playoffs. And, and, yeah, right now looking at it, the Nationals' 81% chance to win the World Series. Uh, <laughs> or maybe 20 times the Astros would win that if they played out. And, uh, yeah, Corbin's great. I uh, I thought it was interesting. I might have let him go a little longer in game one but since – he was probably their best option at the bullpen, but now they have him fresh for, for game three. Uh, and, you know, we talked a lot about the Astros lineup, but Craig Turner, Juan Soto, Anthony Rendon, and the Nationals have a very good lineup as well. So uh, it's, it's, it really is a good series. And uh, while their Nationals are overwhelming favorites, uh, I still wouldn't completely count the Astros out. But, yeah, it, it should be good stuff. And to see, we should, I think we might get another Scherzer-Cole matchup, which would be fun. Uh, so it, it feels a little old school in this, <laughs> in this very 2019 series, but uh, yeah, it's been it's been enjoyable. Your book MVP Machine has been a huge hit, and everybody in baseball has been talking about it. How much fun has that been for you to watch all these people in baseball constantly reference referencing your book? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's 
it's always nice to hear for, for the book. And we feel, Ben and I feel like this book was something that had to come out this year because it was capturing uh, a big a big pivot in the sport towards this focus on player development. And this is the new uh, data-based, new tech, new ideas in player development is sort of the new money ball. That's where uh, competitive advantages are being had. So you know, we saw some of this beginning to take place last few years, but it really felt like there was an acceleration of this movement this year. So we felt it was important to try to hammer out that book as quickly as we could. And uh, we felt this kind of bubbling up more and more as we reported it over 2018. And we've seen it, you know, explode, explode this season and it's only going to continue. And you know, it's exciting to see individual players get more out of themselves to see teams, uh, implement philosophies that extract more value out of players. Uh, I mean, even the twins who are all in on this, I think it's interesting what they've done with their catchers and their receiving ability. They've transformed, they've really improved framing, pitch framing results all the way through their system from top to bottom, just by changing technique and practices, uh, the power of this movement. So, I mean, I know the A's are interested in this and invested. Uh, so yeah, it's been cool to see. And yeah, the timing of the book, I think was, uh, was good for where the game's at. We always appreciate the time. Enjoy the rest of the World Series, and we'll be reading you on 538. And, of course, we'll keep promoting the MVP machine. Take care. <laughs> Thank you so much. Blummer, what's going on, my man? Not too much. How we doing, fellas? How's the Bay Area? Uh, the Bay Area is absolutely beautiful. We're kind of having, like, that, that fall heat wave right now. It really uh, – if you like to be outside, you want to play a little golf or whatever you like to do, uh, it, it's perfect here right now. Yeah, you know what's crazy is I think you guys have got the heat, and we're actually 75 and sunny down here in Houston, which is probably the only good thing going on right now down in Houston. Yeah, we'll we'll, um, I, we'll just quickly address it because it's come down. It's the big news, and, yeah. uh, and I know it's been a very tough situation. Uh, it's clearly the Astros have not handled this correctly. Major League Baseball had to come in. Brandon Taubman has now been released of his duties. He's been fired. Just what has this been like since since the report came out on Monday? Um, it's it's just been that cloud that's been hanging over the organization. I think that the Astros, you know, they they've done so much and worked so hard in the front office to create this ball club, and now they finally get back to the World Series. And it's unfortunate that the events unfolded the way they did. It's unfortunate, uh, you know, that it took a couple of days to really get down and figure out what had happened. But I think that the Astros felt compelled with all the evidence to make the move to fire Brandon Taubman. Yeah, it was, uh, it was not a good look and, and we'll move on and get to the baseball, but do you think this at all? And it's, I mean, it's, it's hard to really know. Do you think this at all affected the actual ball club? You know, that's always a tough tough thing to to think about because, you know, it may have affected the front office a little bit more uh, with the turmoil and trying to, you know, get out the right press releases and, you know, things weren't exactly going their way with how they handled it. And then the only thing I can imagine as a player, and of course the, the players aren't going to admit to this, but I can only imagine the sensation of beating the Yankees in the American League Championship Series celebrating knowing you're going to your second world series in three years. And then you have the off day, you show up for, you know, the training day the next day. And all of a sudden you get a question, Hey, did you hear about what the, G the, the assistant GM did? And it probably put a little bit of a damper on what should have been a celebratory time. 
and turned into that dark cloud that was kind of hovering over the organization. And the Astros uh, figured it out that they needed to get rid of uh, Taubman, and he's gone. And hopefully they can move forward and play some baseball and focus on what's most important, which is going out there and winning some baseball games for the players. Yeah, we can start focusing again on the 115th World Series, and pretty cool. This is going to be the first World Series game in Washington, D.C. in 86 years. And there's only been three teams that have been able to come back from down 0-2 when they lost the first two at home. 85 Royals, 86 Mets, and the 96 Yankees. I mean, if there's really another team that can do it, I mean, clearly it's the Houston Astros. Yeah, you know what, I appreciate you saying that too because it gets, it gets kind of lost in the, in the fact that they've lost two games and they've lost, lost them rather ugly you know, giving up 17 runs, and then you say who lost the first two games, and it says Cole and Verlander next to it in the L column, and you start to panic a little bit, but you're right. You know, in these seven-game series, luckily there's enough time to maybe right the shift and, and correct things a little bit and reinvigorate this team. But uh, if there is a team that can do it, it is the Astros, most notably because the pitching can be very good. But the thing that's really stuck out for me, even from the American League Division Series to the Championship Series to the World Series now, is how inept the, the offense has been. It's been amazing to me to watch them be uncomfortable in the batter's box and not be able to come up with a big hit and just watching other teams really take it to the Astros pitching and do what the offense has seen themselves do throughout the course of the season. So as bad as things have been, the offense has been that much worse, and that's where I probably feel the focus is going to have to be in the next couple of games if they're going to try and get back in this series. Yeah, they've only, since the start of the ALCS, they have only hit 127 with runners in scoring position. And, you know, and, 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 and as an A's guy playing against the Astros so much, it's like it shocks you <laughs> when you see a number like that. No, it really is. And, I mean, I can't imagine how it frustrates other teams knowing that, uh, you know, you go up against the Astros, you watch them get the clutch hits, you watch them get the big home runs when they needed it, and now you're watching, you know, them go into the playoffs and not put up the numbers that you're accustomed to seeing. And what's interesting to me about the playoffs, too, as much as we want to harp on the offense, this offense is built for the playoffs. It's built to be deep. It's built to uh, run up pitch counts. It's built to you know, force the opposing manager – to use their bullpen appropriately, but at the same time, the Astros offense has run into some very, very good playoff pitching, and what I've seen from Scherzer and Strasburg throughout the course of the playoffs, too, is a lot of the reason why the Nationals are in the uh, World Series, and they have stepped up and pitched brilliantly in the first two games against the Astros offense. As you know, as a World Series champion, you know, there's something about when a team has that mojo and it's got that magic and it's got that chemistry and you're having a great time and, and, and everything's going your way because you've done it before. I mean, that's just what the Nationals look like. They're having a great time. Everything's going their way. What is that like? It, it's an amazing feeling, and I think it's really unique for the uh, Washington Nationals just because they've been that wild card underdog throughout the course of the uh, postseason. And I really feel that they've used that to their advantage. Now, I know everybody wants to point to the navy blue jersey being 8-0, but sometimes just a little bit of a tweak, a little bit of a change in mindset can get these guys going. But these guys are a legitimate uh, ball club that's gone out there, and I think what really creates a massive amount of momentum and kind of fear, you know, strikes a little bit of fear in my heart is the fact that they went into a hostile environment of Minute Maid Park, 
an extremely loud crowd. They scored early, took the crowd out of it, put everybody on the edge of their seat. And now guess what? They're up 2-0, and and they're going to have the first World Series games in Washington, D.C., and who knows how long. And it's going to be an absolutely electric atmosphere for these guys to go out there and perform. I, I actually can't wait to see what type of situation it is in D.C. for these guys. You know, we're talking about Zach Greinke potentially being a Hall of Famer. And I think, you know, when it's all said and done, the numbers will put him in Cooperstown. But he has not been great in the postseason this year or really in his career. I think it's safe to say, and we'll see if you agree, this is the biggest start of his career. Oh, it has to be. And, I, you know, I think it's unique. We talked before we went to the playoffs uh, when we found out uh, that the Astros had won the American League West. And we, everybody had that what-if scenario. If the Astros make it to the World Series, who's going to be your Game 3 starter? And it was easy. It was going to be Zach Granke because he can swing the bat. But I agree with you in the sense that, you know, the track record as far as the regular season is concerned is great. Phenomenal Hall of Fame-type numbers that he'll be able to comp against. But we know in watching what's happened to Clayton Kershaw, what your legacy is really built on is what you're able to do in the postseason. It's one thing to be able to lead your team <clears> – <throat> excuse me – lead your team throughout the course of the season, it's another thing to go out there and lead them in the postseason. And that's where you really make a mark on your legacy. But uh, I don't know if it's going to be one of those situations where everybody's expecting them to go six shutout. I think they'd be really happy if they got, if they got a quality start out of Zach Granke, you know, going six innings, only giving up three earned runs, and hopefully the offense shows up. Yeah, then, then you know, we're looking at a bullpen game, right, for game four for the Astros? Yeah, that's what's going to be interesting to me, too. And that was actually one of the games that clinched it for him in the championship series. I think, you know, knowing that game four, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of stuttering a little bit because I'm kind of thinking in my head, trying to get an A.J. Hinge's head a little bit, because if it's a bullpen, you have Zach Greinke going game three. Game four is a bullpen day. So how far is Zach Greinke able to go? If he comes out early like he did in the division series, then all of a sudden you have a, a pseudo bullpen day with a three-inning opener in Zach Granke, and then you show up the next day and you have to have another bullpen day. So I wonder how it's going to affect A.J. Hinch going into that game four. Is he going to manage game three a little bit differently? Uh, you know, it's not a must-win situation, but I think it's a very desperate time where you, if you do have a lead and you see Granke getting beat up a little bit early on, you've got to back him up, and that could really cause some issues in game four for him if it is a bullpen day. Hey, can, can I play a highlight for you? <laughs> sure. All right, all right. Let, let's everybody just listen. Here, here we go. Longest game in World Series history. Blum <laughs> hits it into right down the line. It is gone. Jeff Blum, the former Astro, goes deep. And here in the 14th inning, the White Sox take a 6-5 lead. Jeff Blum gets his first at bat of this series and only his second of the postseason. Happy anniversary. That's uh, tomorrow. Yes, and I, I, would, I will never not come on your show if you play that for me. I always appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but as long as we're on in, in the Bay Area and a lot of Bay Area fans are listening to this, the sole reason I had the opportunity to get that swing and hit that home run left-handed is because of my, my time at Cal. It was Bob Milano, my freshman year, who said, you're going to switch it or I'm going to pull your scholarship. So, you know, I'm, I'm indebted to Bob Milano for the rest of my life because of the opportunity he gave me. But also, you know, that's why Cal is so near and dear to my heart because I learned how to switch it there. And if I didn't learn how to switch it, I wouldn't have had the career or the opportunities I had.
God, we got so many Cal Bears around Major League Baseball. I mean, just look at the A's yeah. where you got Bob Melvin, you got Mark Canna, you got Marcus Simeon. I mean, there's Cal Bears everywhere. It's a beautiful thing. And, you know, I love going back up there because, you know, you see uh, Simeon walking around. I introduce myself. It's easy to introduce yourself to these guys because uh, Cal baseball players have a very good idea of, you know, the guys who came before them. So it's a lot of fun to kind of get around the cage a little bit. And if you haven't met a guy, you just kind of go, Hey, go bears. And they look at you and their eyes light up. So it, I'm very grateful to see that many Cal bears floating around. They've done a good job over the years of, of producing not just talent, but very, you know, pretty high quality guys coming out of there too. Okay. So I need some recommendations. I'm coming to Houston tomorrow with the Raiders as the Raiders are taking on the Texans. So I'm going to, I'm going to need some restaurant recommendations. Um, the first one I'm going to give to you, and I'm, I'm a little biased because I've worked with them in the past, but St. Arnold Brewery downtown has the best craft beers in Houston, and they've got phenomenal food. They hired a great chef out there. They've got great pizzas, burgers, uh, bratwurst, and uh, the environment's perfect. They have outdoor dining, and like I said, you, you're going to be shocked when you get off this plane, Chris, because it's it's 75. It's gorgeous. It might be a little, you know, it might be about 70 degrees tomorrow when you get down here. But it's going to be a phenomenal time. Little Woodrow's for sports bars are great spots. But, yeah, when you get down here, make sure you text me. And if you need anything, I will definitely hook you up. Are you going to come to the football game on Sunday? You know what? I'm a little enticed now that knowing that you're going to be there. I may make a couple phone calls and see if I can get down there and maybe bug you. Well, hell, I'll get you in the game. Seriously? Yeah, of course. Oh, man. Okay, so we're on the phone. I know that. But I'm going to check my – calendar real quick because i may make a point of doing that of course yeah and then if you're around text me, text me when you get down here and then if you're around on saturday beers on me well that's well that's how you make a friendship right there man <laughs> hey you've been so good to me over the years i'd be honored to buy you beers <laughs> and especially to do it down here in houston we don't have that opportunity too much because i'm always coming up to you over the course of the season but if you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend and have a couple of beers with you. Oh, that'll be awesome. All right, buddy. Enjoy the rest of the World Series, and I'll text you uh, when we land. Yeah, You better. I look forward to it, man. Safe travels, and thanks for having me on. The great Jason Giambi is going to be there, and he joins us here on A's Cast Live with Chris Townsend. Jason, it's great to have you back on the program. Thank you so much for having me. So we got our times crossed up a little bit, but uh, it's my fault. But I appreciate you guys making time for me. Oh, no, for you, anything. And I think about, I mean, look at the names that are going to be there at Fantasy Camp with, with Stu and Vida and Dallas and Campy and Bobby Crosby and Carney Lansford and yourself. This thing's going to be a blast. Oh, we're going to have a great time. I mean, it's so great to see a lot of those guys. And uh, this is going to be my first Fantasy Camp, so – I'm enjoying it, looking forward to it, you know, being with all the A's fans and the A's greats and Carney and Gay Stewart and Ida and everybody, so it's going to be exciting. You know, and I think about your time. I mean, your last year was 2014, so it hasn't been that long since you were in uniform, and I know you got the young kids now. I bet you're going to be itching to take a little BP. Oh, I, I don't know about that anymore. <laughs> but, uh, I had lots of fun. You know, I've I, I got a few things here and there, but, you know, I always laugh because my kids, when they watch me play now, because they only watch me on YouTube. They're so young, they don't even know what it was like when I played, so they can only watch me on YouTube. How old are your kids now? Seven, five, and two. 
So the so the seven year old is starting to figure out dad was kind of a big deal. Yeah, she laughs about it. She was born near the end of my career, and uh, you know she came to a few games. She didn't like all the noise, but she liked all the dancing. She liked all the the music they played at the stadiums. But uh, it's a lot of fun. You know, they they make fun of me, and with the long hair and everything else, so we have a good time with it. Yeah, and, and the cool thing about it is, and, and I've heard this for years, and we're, we're going to try and get down there and do the show from there. But it's like the relationships that you build, it's, it, they're, they're really relationships that become lifelong relationships. Oh, there's, there's no doubt. You know, I mean, when I broke into the big leagues, you know, Carney was there and Dave Stewart was there and all these guys were still there. I remember, you know, getting a chance to play with all those guys. I mean, they were my idols growing up, and here I am playing in the big leagues with them. And then Bobby Crosby came after I was with the A's, but his dad is the one who drafted me. So I've known Bobby since he was a – young kid and you know dallas is always great and we played together the second my second suit with the a so it's exciting you know and you got campy and vita who i mean great to the game so it should be a lot of fun yeah so all you need to do is go to google and put in oakland a's fan fest and the link will pop up mesa arizona january 9th through the 14th and what's so cool about going down there is you're going to be wearing the big league uniform, you're going to be playing in games, and then there's going to be the nighttime entertainment, but you're going to be using the same facilities that the big leaguers use that, Jason, most fans never get that opportunity to even see what these facilities look like. Oh, they're, they're unbelievable. Like I said, the game is really transformed now. Where spring training and all these facilities are, I mean, are a huge deal now. And it, they're incredible. They're great to be a part of. And like I said, this is the fun part uh, for the fans and also the players, you know, to have that interaction, you know, where you kind of grow up and you listen to the stories. And, oh, I mean, it's funny now. I, I grew up and go to these events and, you know, have these, oh, I was a young kid when you were playing the game. And, you know, it's like 25 years old now. And so it's exciting. You know, it's, it's a chance to, to give back to the fans who were always there rooting for you. Yeah, staying at a four-star resort in Scottsdale, that doesn't suck. Every camper is going to – No, hang out in a nice resort in Scottsdale. No, it, it doesn't suck. No. Oh, are you kidding me? The weather is going to be perfect. Every every camper is going to get a home white uniform. You get a room. You get transportation to the resort, to the fields. It's breakfast, lunch. And then I hear there's a few uh, uh, libations uh, later that night with everybody hanging out telling stories. Oh, it'll be great. Yeah, I think there's going to be some Q&As and, and everything. It'll be a lot of fun. I mean, it's that interaction that, like I said, as a player and also as a fan that you always dream about, having that interaction. Because, you know, when you're playing in your career, it's hard sometimes. Uh, you know, spring training is always great. But when you're playing the season, it's about, you know, winning games and trying to go to the World Series. But this is the time that you you have that intimate setting where – you can talk baseball forever. You can talk about old times. You can talk about great stories, and it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, and there's another package where you can get an upgrade on accommodations and get the Kelly Green jersey and then a day of golf with A's alum. So you can check it all out, athletics.com slash fantasy camp. Uh, you know, the World Series going on right now, Jason, and obviously shocking a little bit as uh, you're down in Vegas and, and, the, and, the, and the big favorites in this were the Houston Astros, and they find themselves down 0-2 after two games at home going to now Washington for game three. How shocked have you been about this World Series? 
to be honest with you, I have. And I told all my buddies out here, they kept asking me, like, who they should put their money on being in Vegas. I'm like, listen, if the Washington Nationals get into this, they're going to be tough to beat. They're just so unbelievable on the mound, and I don't think they get enough credit offensively. I mean, they have some great hitters on their team. Obviously, they don't – it's harder to show that type of hitting when you're in the National League because you can pitch around guys and things like that. But, I mean, I, 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 I expected them to be in the World Series, to be honest with you. If they got past that first Walker game, because, I mean, when you're Scherzer – uh, and, and everybody else that you're in Strasburg and everybody else, I mean, they have an unbelievable starting pitching, and that's what wins in the playoffs. And I think about that X factor that you can't predict, you don't know you're going to have it, but they've got that magic mojo going right now. And, like, you're looking into their dugout, it's like they're having a blast. They got dancing going on. They're driving the car together. I mean, they, there there is that continuity. There is that chemistry. And then you look over to the Astros dugout, and they look absolutely miserable. Well, I think there's something to be said about they. I mean, the, the Washington Nationals have been in a dogfight for the last, what, month and a half, two months to get into the playoffs in the wild card. And, and like I said, it's, I've been on that side of the coin where you've been a wild card, you've won your division so easily, and then it's hard to re, recapture that intensity again when you know, you're okay, we've won 100 games, we're in the playoffs, let's, let's go win the World Series. Where Washington's been in a dogfight. You know, they've been in a dogfight for a long time, so they have that intensity, you know, and, which has carried them all the way through. And they've, and they've been the underdog because – Houston, you know, everybody's picked Houston or there was a time when the Yankees were up there and everybody else. So Washington has something to prove. You know, they definitely have something to prove this year. You had a 9-11 OPS in your career in the postseason with seven home runs and 19 RBIs. You hit 290, all very good numbers. What is it like in the postseason where every single pitch, I mean, you're hanging on every little thing in the postseason. Oh, there's no doubt. There's, I mean, every pitch means something. That intensity's there. You know, where you kind of play during the season where you can kind of take a pitch off or take, you know, an out off sometimes depending on what position you play. But you can't do that because, I mean, one run is such a big deal in the playoffs. And, I mean, it's been so fun to watch these two, you know, powerhouses play. And, you know, I think, as you said, I've been shell-shocked a little bit. I just knew that when Washington got in there, they were going to be tough to beat with their starting pitching. And one thing we've talked a lot about on this show is about it's great to see starting pitchers actually really playing a big role, going deeper into games, throwing more mm. pitches. And, I mean, this is the area you played in where you had big-name starters, and big-name starters, it just makes the game better. You got star power out there on the mound. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, well, it keeps everybody in the game. You know, it, it really does. It keeps everybody watching the game on TV, going deep in the games, and, you know, and like I, like you said earlier, I mean, one pitch makes such a huge difference. I mean, look how fast last night's game got out of hand real quick. I mean, one pitch, and before you know it, it's a barrage of hits and runs, and, and that's what happens in the playoffs. It's so unpredictable. I mean, you can have a one-hit shootout, or you can have blowouts, and, and that's the exciting part about playoff baseball. Well, it's going to be a great time down in Mesa, Arizona. Jason, thanks for the time, and we're going to promote this thing, and hopefully we'll see you down there January 9th through the 14th. Thank you so much for making time for me. I'm very grateful and I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see everybody. Great stuff, Jason. Always a pleasure. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.